This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, we got a great show for you today. Uh, we are going to be going in deep, in deep to uh, to figure out these no-go zones, okay? Places all over, uh, I guess, Europe at least, um, but uh, some are worried they could also, you know, happen here in the United States where they're, they're uh, locations where a high concentration of Muslims have, uh, I guess, gathered by by sheer force of the economy, not being able to live anywhere else. There's no jobs. There's no, you know, there's no money. There's nowhere to go. So they go into these uh, ghettos, they're calling them, um, Muslim ghettos, and they end up becoming maybe the grounds where terror and terrorism um, is spread and... Um, and promoted. In fact, they're finding out in Brussels, in France, these ghettos are the location where many of these uh, these terrorists have been arrested and where a lot of their planning took place. So we're going to be talking with an expert, Amos Garoa from um, the University of Utah, who is an expert in terrorism and uh, counterterrorism um, methods, but also in – we've had him on the show two or three times. I love having him. Uh, he's a man – with a deep, deep understanding of what's going on in the war on terror. And is uh, he's going to give us some insight in a few minutes about that. We also, um, of course, throughout the show, we're going to be giving you the latest tools, the latest information, everything you need to grow a healthier, happier life. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Despite repeatedly denying he'd run for president during the 2016 Republican National Convention, the New York Observer reported Monday the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, is set to attend a secretive meeting with, quote, 20 or so GOP donors. According to the report, Chicago Cubs owner Todd Ricketts arranged the rendezvous with a top financial bundler, bundlers uh, next week at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Manhattan. The summit came after the observer's attention uh, came to the observer's attention thanks to a big donor who's been approached but declined to participate. So Paul Ryan might be making mm. a move. The mosquito-borne Zika virus is more dangerous than initially expected. USA Today reports that experts warned on Monday most of what's been learned is not reassuring, says Dr. Ann Shuket, the principal deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Everything we look at with this virus seems to be a bit scarier than we initially thought. The mosquito species that spreads Zika is present in 30 states, according to the CDC, not the initially reported 12. The virus is also being linked to more medical conditions that go beyond birth defects and cause a similar uh, or a smaller brain size. Um, in other news, Texas and Oklahoma braced Monday night for a second round of severe storms and a hail the size of tennis balls as Arkansas was strafed by tornadoes and hit by lightning strikes. Four people were trapped in their homes after a small twister tore through Garland, Arkansas, officials there said. 65 miles east of Garland, lightning strikes sparked three fires in the town of El Dorado, Arkansas, including one that destroyed a church. This morning, school, a school district near Dallas closed as they're cleaning up after softball-sized hail 
did great damage to their facilities. And uh, this happened at a baseball game. Uh, Detroit Tigers fan Bill Duggan snared five foul balls during Monday afternoon's game. All five ended up in the hands of kids in wow. the surrounding one seat guy, area. One guy. Balls. He caught one during the uh, pregame batting practice. Okay. Five during the game. Um, he, hand, he handed all these, you know, every ball everybody loves up. that guy. Uh, the, he's a season ticket holder. He says they all, all the balls landed within 15 feet of his seat. Then again, he might not be the hero everyone thinks he might be. You know, the idea of handing out these, these souvenirs yeah. to kids. He has two to 300 of these foul balls at home. Wow. For some reason, his seat happens to be a very, very high foul ball area. And I'm sure he carries a mitt to the game. He does. His record uh, before was four during the uh, batting practice and four during the game. And so now it's four and five. Wow. He's doing great. He's doing great. He's got a great record. Apparently, he has a lot of free time. Well, good. A Golden Glove Canada, apparently. For the fan in the stand. (laughs) The fan in the stand. Interesting news, Terry. Um, So uh, all of a sudden... All I hear about is Bernie Sanders, um, Donald Trump. I'm hearing all these these comparisons between Bernie and Donald on all of the major networks. What's going on? Like, is it d- – d- well, are these you- just the anti-establishment – I don't know. It's like they're being supported now by the media because I guess – We the- keep hearing about the silent majority, Yeah, the people that are angry, that are not represented – and so we, who, who's seeing a lot of the energy in the campaigns right now? You have Trump, who's a, a uh, I guess you could call a radical candidate when it comes to a Republican ideal, and Bernie Sanders seeing a lot of success, even though he's a radical candidate for Democratic ideal. Right. And so with the, both those two being represented, you have, I guess, if you're feeling wronged by politics, they're they're the, they're someone the who possibly could people. represent you. Yeah. And so they both kind of can be very comparable. Even Trump's like saying, this thing's rigged. This thing is rigged, and then he's using examples of Bernie Sanders. All yes. you hear about Bernie is that he's winning. He wins seven of the last eight, but then we hear there's no way he can win. Mm-hmm. This thing's rigged. This thing's rigged. I don't, I think, know, if, I don't I, know if it's rigged. No, I, that Donald says it's rigged. You see what uh, Ted Cruz said? No. He says Trump is whining, and <laughs> yeah. whining is only paired well with cheese, so this <laughs> needs to stop. He goes... He goes, Donald, when people don't vote for you, it's not being rigged. It's it's called the democratic process. Yeah. They, they're they not voting for you. Just kind of deal with it and move we, on. But. Which is interesting because Trump is killing Cruz in New York. But Cruz isn't whining because he's in California whining and dining. Because he's, as they said, given up on New York. How do you give up on New York? Well, he, he's not going to. He's he's done all that he can. Trump has a huge lead there. It's, it's where he's from. Yeah. So he uh, Cruz is going to where he feels like he can make some uh, some inroads, find some success, and he's out in what San Diego yesterday, I think he was. Mm-hmm. He's out raising money, pressing the flesh. That's what they call it in political business? Is that what it is? Yeah. Is that the inside? Yeah, it's just what we call it in the political world. But it, with uh, with Trump and Bernie, I heard someone uh, talking about how the political spectrum is usually seen as kind of flat, where you mm-hmm. have right, left, conservative, liberal. But they're saying it's actually kind of round in that if you keep going with the the ideas and keep pushing to the extreme, eventually the extremes wrap around and meet. Ooh. And the ideas actually kind of mesh. And they say that when you look at Trump and, and you look at uh, Bernie Sanders, some of their ideas are comparable. And that's the reason why is because they're actually quite closer to each other than they are to their actual parties. Yeah. Um, is is Bernie or is uh, Kasich still in the race? He is. And he, he was uh, interviewed and 
He spoke quite a bit yesterday. And in fact, it's it's interesting because isn't he in a isn't, isn't MSNBC or CNN or somebody's doing a last, town hall with last him night? He did. A, I think oh, it was, it was last night. Him and his family. Yeah. And then CNN is going to meet. I believe they're going to have each candidate one at a time, one at a time with their family because that's the new way to do a town hall. Because they've done the town hall with the candidate. Yeah. Now we're going to. Meet the, it's kind of like meet the, meet the spouse because the spouse has been brought up so many times <laughs> in some of these. So from uh, Kasich's little uh, meet and greet last night, let's give you a few clips. Um, so many would think Kasich would be like the perfect VP. Would you ask me if I would be his vice president? Would you? Zero. <laughs> Absolutely not. Zero. I'm not going to be anybody's vice president. Do you th- I would be the worst vice president the country ever saw. You know why? Because I'm not like a vice president. I'm a president. You know, that's you don't want to be I second do. fiddle. Well, it's not it's not so much about that, Anderson. Look, I'm running for the top job, and if I don't get the top job, okay, I'm still governor of Ohio. Hmm. That's I yeah, have he a has a fallback position. That could end up being a really great commercial for the Democrats when Kasich gets asked to be someone's VP. Yeah, I'm well, going to be the worst VP. In the world. <laughs> Poor guy, but they don't. They can't say, yeah, you know what? I'll be VP. Nobody wants that. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, who gets to wear the left-handed glove? There's always one left-handed glove in, like, your baseball bag. Yeah. Or, or when I was a kid, my co- we go to my cousin's house, and he goes, here's some boxing gloves. Let's, let's box. Yeah. And he took the right-handed glove, gave me the left, <laughs> yeah. and I got pummeled. See? But, yeah, nobody wants the left-handed no, glove. You just get pummeled. Uh, and, and it would handicap his campaign as it yeah. is where he would say, I'm gonna, I, I want to be vice president, so no one wants to vote for you now because you already said you're basically out. It seems like, though, his, his, handy, his, ca- his candidacy is already handicapped. It is. And the fact that most people aren't voting for him. Yeah, I mean, that, that's hard, too. Um, he also claims he's the only guy that's going to be able to win this thing. If I'm the only one that can win in the fall, how do you pick somebody else? And let me tell you what the well, other... Why would a delegate pick you if the only state you've actually won is Ohio? Well, let's see how many delegates we accumulate. But why would you pick somebody who can't win in the fall? Let me tell you the, the, what the stakes are. Uh, I believe if you pick these other guys, you're not only going to lose the White House, you'll lose the court, you will lose the United States Senate, and you're going to lose a lot of seats. Why from- can't Ted Cruz win? Because they're too divisive. They're too negative. Look at how their negatives are. Their negative ratings. And it's very hard to turn negatives around. Believe me. Hmm. That's a good point. He's citing some polls that show that he would run more effectively against Hillary Clinton than Trump or Cruz. Yeah. But he can't run against Trump or Cruz. Right. At least right now. Well, yeah, this is the problem with the primaries is it's forced really far to the right or the left. But Kasich is kind of more moderate. That's why he could, he can win. Get you just elect me as your through the primaries, and I'll win this thing nationally. But it's not going to happen. No. Uh, is he getting pressure to drop out? They they asked. How much pressure are you under to get out of the race? Zero. None. They're not no. Look, to get I just had I just had four thousand people in Grace, New York. I'm sorry, Greece, New York. And here's the thing. For the first time since I have been a candidate, because I don't get into the mud and call names, people are finally starting to hear my message. He's keeping it clean. This was Charlie Rose on CBS this morning. No pressure to drop out. Do you believe that? No. I believe there's immense pressure to drop out. Yeah. 
he may not be listening to it or acknowledging it, but no. you know, I, I, I bet you the party might have uh, suggested a couple times. Do you drop out? I don't know. Well, it depends on what his goals are. Does he think? I think he believes he can get to the the convention and make some inroads. Yeah. Now, especially if it goes to a second or third ballot. So why get out? If you yeah. have the money, it's a couple. You know, a couple more months, you'll be there. Just hang out, get a free ticket to Cleveland. Life's good. And then you die. And then, of course, if you lose, you go back to Ohio and be the the governor. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. Go be the governor of Ohio. I mean. Part of your constituency is LeBron James, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. Also, I mean, it's a, it's you're just naming things that the Bengals, <laughs> Bengals, <laughs> a lot of big companies. Don't forget the Steelers, Steelers, the Browns. Yeah, three football teams. Steelers over Pittsburgh. It's a different state. Hold on, what are we talking about? <laughs> Bengals, <laughs> Browns. That's it. That's it. Cavaliers. It's pretty cool. Go ahead. Name, name some other sports teams. Why do sports uh, teams have to do with? No, it's case? just I just think it's really cool. What's a cool state? I love Cincy. Oh. I mean, I love Ohio, but I love uh, Honda of America manufacturing plants in Marysville. All right, been there, done that. That's great. Um, this is where they make Hondas. Oh yeah, they make a. It's 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 where the, all the auto parts store headquarters are. Yeah, I'm telling you. I love Ohio. Hey, uh, great day, too, by the way. Walk on your wild side day. That's for Ben. Uh, today's the day to be unpredictable. Actually, De- Ben, we'd like you to just be predictable, which would be unpredictable. Okay. And then uh, today's also grilled cheese sandwich day. A total win. I had a grilled cheese sandwich last night. That's in, ce- in preparation for today's great celebration. Hey, um, we've got a wonderful show coming up. No-go zones, they're called, um, over in Europe. And, uh, you know, I guess the concern could be eventually here in the United States, there's, there's certain ghettos, areas where there's a high concentration of underemployed, misunderstood, unincorporated Muslim population. And they're finding out that in these no-go zones, they may be breeding terror. This is where we're finding in Brussels a lot of the... Uh, the terrorist activity came from these no-go zones. We are going to be talking with Amos Giroa, who is a professor of law at uh, University of Utah and is an expert who teaches criminal procedure, international law, global perspectives on counterterrorism and religion and terrorism. He's going to be walking us through uh, what we, you know, what we should know about these no-go zones and, and what are the answers? What are some solutions that countries should be focusing on? Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world and hopefully help us understand what's going on that might be driving some of our our world problems. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after the heartbreaking attacks in France and Belgium, massive international attention has once again been directed to Islamic radical groups living within major European uh, cities. These enclaves, or no-go zones as they're being called, were a topic of much speculation. In fact, many uh, people say they don't even exist. These no-go zones aren't even real. 
except uh, others, uh, you know, have been able to prove that something's going on there. Uh, Muslim ghettos, for example, in Paris and Brussels uh, are the locations where they ended up uh, finding and pulling out the brothers who carried out the Charlie Hebdo massacre in January, lived in Banlieues or suburbs of Paris. Um, also, um, recently, Salah Abd Salam, 26, the architect of the November Paris attacks, which left 130 people dead, was found last week hiding in an apartment in Molenbeek, um, a neighborhood in Belgium. So this is these, this seems like the real deal. We wanted to bring in, um, I, I believe, truly one of the great experts, um, uh, and we're, we're actually honored to have him in our state of Utah. Uh, his name is um, Dr. Well, Professor of Law, Amos Giroa, Giora, sorry, Amos Giora, who is an expert in criminal procedure, international law, global perspectives on counterterrorism and religion and terrorism. He has served in the Israeli Defense Forces and is a, has been a legal advisor to the Gaza Strip. Uh, Amos Giora, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We love having you here. And be, just to pick your brain now, first off, Amos, is this are these no go zones real? I think in many ways they are, but I think we need to be careful with, with what what no go zone means. It I think it reflects a, a hesitation, reluctance on the part of, of law enforcement to go into certain areas. Brussels is an excellent example. Perhaps Paris is also an example. There are obviously multiple dangers to these no-go zones. One is that they are um, not enforced by the state. There's no law enforcement. And the moment there's no law enforcement in a particular neighborhood, it means that it's self-enforcement or self-regulation. That's obviously very dangerous. And two, it clearly facilitates, enables um, from the forces of evil to be able to operate um, freely and, and within those areas and to gather strength and to prepare and plan moving forward. And that obviously, at the end of the day, has, as we have well seen, has terrible ramifications. Mm. Yeah. is and It's almost like we, we're being a little politically correct about it because the uh, there's some people that don't that say they don't even exist. These things aren't even real, except there are places apparently in uh, Brussels where uh, you don't the you the emergency services won't go in until they could get a police escort. I mean, this yeah, is that, that's correct. But, but you know, there, Europe is not the only place um, where there are there, there are these no go zones. But there's no doubt that at the moment. Much of the world's attention, correctly, hmm. is focused. And you're right to highlight, obviously, Paris and Brussels. There's no doubt, for a variety of reasons, that Brussels really has become, um, let's call it, quote unquote, headquarters mm-hmm. um, for the jihadists in Europe. It's evident, for them. It's evidently easy to operate within Brussels. And I remind you that until recently, there was even a, a law in Belgium that I believe it's from between 9 p.m. and 5 a.m., law enforcement can't go into neighborhoods, hmm. you know, residential neighborhoods, uh, to, ar- to arrest people. This is actually a crime in progress. That statue, as I understand from um, friends of mine in Europe who have asked them to look into this on my behalf, that city ordinance or city's ordinance was recently changed, but it, it, it is very indicative and suggestive 
of, of an utter lack of recognition of the need to confront terrorism, not only from 6 in the morning until 8 o'clock yeah. at night, but 24 hours a day. Now, what would that be about? I mean, why? Why on earth would you not be able to, you know, serve a warrant or go into these areas whenever you wanted? Because I think it, it reflects a profound misunderstanding or non-understanding that that terrorist organizations are functioning 24 hours a day, yeah. seven days a week. And if there were more hours in the day, they'd function more than 24 hours. And it really does. You're right to ask the question. It it. it it reflects, and from my perspective, an utter imbalance in the context of public safety, public good, and protecting the individuals. And so, let's say that there are people who live in residential neighborhood X who are involved in planning a crime or act of terrorism at 2 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. um, or are talking about it, and you know they're there, but according to this um, formerly in existence ordinance, you could not go arrest them. That, fortunately, has been eradicated or, or uh, changed. Um, why it was in effect, you know, with the expression, your guess is as good as mine, but there's no doubt that it's troubling. Well, and again, as a terrorism expert, I mean, I guess this is where Brussels, uh, I guess they're getting the message. And because these terrorists were playing, you know, in between these countries, right? They're kind of weaving right on the borders, in and out, in and out of these countries. That's because, exactly I, right. Well, and part of it's the communication over there, right? They don't. They they don't communicate as effectively as they need to probably between the countries. Well, first of all, you know, in the the European Union, once you're in an EU country, there are no borders. Right. You can easily go back and forth from place A to B to see once you're in. There's no doubt also that the Belgian authorities who had been criticized prior to the attack um, for failing to sufficiently recognize the danger posed by terrorism – I think in retrospect, we're, we're justifiably criticized, but there's also a sense of over-bureaucracy. If I recall correctly, in the city of Brussels alone, there are seven distinct law enforcement authorities who have some kind of jurisdictional control over particular aspects of law enforcement counterterrorism. Oh, wow. There's no way you can conduct counterterrorism with seven distinct entities because we know how this works. Like, it's all about uh, turf wars. It's about resources. It's about money. It's about ego and so on. So there's no way you, you can you can conduct any any kind of effective counterterrorism. That's point A. Point B. Point B. You're absolutely right. Um, the, in terms of uh, cooperation, well, here we have intra intra right cooperation, but you're also highlighting inter cooperation between the Dutch, the Belgians, and the French. So there there was a a telegram. Um, this was a source of discussion in the Dutch Parliament, I think, two weeks ago, that was sent to the Dutch embassy in Turkey by Turkish intelligence authorities, warning them about um, either one or two people. Um, that telegram evidently was not shared, and that lends, its, leads, it lends itself to then asking the question is, how are we sharing information, and if we're not sharing information – why are we not information? Because we know the cost of a lack of information sharing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and now, I mean, again, if they're going to act as a united uh, front, they're going to need to share information, communication. I mean, and I, I guess this is this is just all new to them, relatively, right? I mean, they they haven't had they've only been dealing with this for the last ten years. I think that's correct. Um, you know, the post-9-11 world has, has, has turned the world upside down. On the other hand, 
you know, terror, terrorism is not new to Europe. I mean, I take you right. back to the to the seventies um, and the Marxist groups like Weidermann Meinhof, right? And th- th- then Europe was plagued by Marxist terrorists like the Red Brigade in in Italy and Weidermann Meinhof in Germany, and um, there was a group also in France. But so that was a different form of terrorism. That was Marxist terrorism. The um, jihadist terrorism or the Islamic extremism terrorism, which is of the past what is it, 15 years, there is a sense that, that European authorities, <clears throat> for a series of, of, of complicated reasons, are you know, like an athlete a step slow or in some cases two, two steps slow. And the Belgians are a prime example <clears throat> of a failure to understand the threat posed internally. And there was also a report in the Israeli media, oh, I think two or three weeks ago, that both both American, um, both the American intelligence community and the Israeli intelligence community had highlighted to the Belgians, for instance, the security weaknesses, lapses um, in the Brussels airport. What the Belgian authorities did with that, um, hmm. you know, your guess is as good as mine. It's a. It really is. A, it's an interesting. Thing. I guess the EU has been around since 2002, um, right after 9-11, really. And yet the, these threats, they've been getting feedback from the U.S. They've been – I guess it's time to, to take it seriously at a whole new level. Um, these – going back to these kind of no-go zones, there's, there's obviously a problem because Europe is being flooded with Syrian refugees, you know, running from a war zone. Uh, apparently, some terrorists might be sneaking through as well, and yet they they get to these countries in Europe and they don't, I guess, have anywhere to go. There's no jobs. There's no outlook. There's positive outlook. There's no hope. So, do they just fall into these slums? The lack of economic opportunity clearly makes recruiting easy. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's A. B, a lack of economic opportunity makes radicalization easy because you're able to – you as the radicalizer are able to paint a negative picture to the potential radicalized. Um, On the other hand, the the refugee immigrant question is extraordinarily complicated, and the Europeans, particularly – Germany, for instance, took in – she was – Chancellor Merkel was, was, was clearly the leader in Europe of, of opening the doors of, of Europe, particularly of Germany, to the refugees. And that's, uh, I think, clearly, from the, her perspective, it's a lesson learned from the Holocaust. There's no doubt about right. that. I mean, that's... But there's also now no doubt that um, many what is referred to as traditional Europeans are expressing concern about the influx of refugees. It's a complicated question. It's easy to make it into a 20-second soundbite. Right, right. But you bring, in, you bring in a significant number of refugees. Um, do you have economic opportunities available for them? Are there jobs? Is there housing? Um, are they able to send their kids to, you know, to schools in terms of education? Because at the end of the day, it's all about education. And I think that's the reason that there's been a sense in the last couple of weeks that perhaps to send the refugees back not to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, but to send them to Turkey, because that's what happened last week or two weeks ago. Mm. But Okay, so now we send refugees back to Turkey. And what are the Turks expected to do with this? Mm. I, a couple of years ago, testified in the Dutch parliament um, 
And there I met um, an individual who was in charge of refugee assimilation, whatever that means, right, mm-hmm. in Turkey. And I asked this guy, a young guy, I said, like, how do you go about doing your job? I mean, we're talking whatever the number is, hundreds of thousands or a couple of million people. How do you feed them? How do you clothe them? How do you shelter them? How do you create opportunities for them? And the refugees get caught in a, in a certain sense in a political chess game between Group A, Group B, Group C. And there's no, you know, there's no vacuum in this business. And into the breach, clearly, step the radicalized groups. That this is it's easy pickings, right? To radicalize people who are have right. come over and are um, without opportunity. The second point is that ISIS said a while ago, and I'm a firm believer and always believing what these guys say, that they're in the refugees who are coming over from the Middle East to Europe. Um, they're also sending, you know, people who belong to ISIS already in a way to infiltrate into Europe. Yeah. Um, so you have two groups here. You have people who are already committed to ISIS coming, and then two, you have those who are radicalizable, not a word, but radicalizable, because of the lack of opportunity once they come to Europe and the sense that here they are, they left the Middle East, and all of a sudden they, they don't have some, anything to do. It's, it's easy picking. It's a, it's a, it is a combustible combina- mm. combination. Let's let's do this, Amos. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Amos Giora, um, one of our great friends from the University of Utah, professor of law, expert in criminal procedure, in uh, global perspectives on counterterrorism and religion and terrorism. He's helping us walk through today these no-go zones and how we might better assimilate uh, the refugees coming from Syria. And I want, when we come back, I want to talk about the United States. Uh, We seem to have a little different situation going here, but maybe, you know, one where we, too, could be creating potential no-go zones. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we're talking about these no-go zones, the these locations right now mainly that we talk about are Brussels and in Paris, these areas of highly concentrated uh, Muslim um, families, but but mainly more Muslim extremists, right? Because the problem isn't being a Muslim family in a community. The problem is being uh, an extremist uh, that is also maybe radicalizing other other extremists or other potential, um, uh, you know, terrorists. And so in these no-go zones, there are these highly concentrated areas that uh, are neighborhoods where there seems to be lower income stability, jobs not existent, um, housing issues. These these cultures aren't able to actually incorporate the Muslim communities into the greater culture of their country, perhaps. And so we wanted to bring in an expert who can help us understand what's going on and also understand kind of uh, the terroristic side of all of this. Uh, who better to teach us than professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah? Professor Amos Giora is joining us again, criminal procedure expert, international law expert, and uh, has a lot of extensive information to teach us about uh, counterterrorism, religion and terrorism. And we're just picking his brain to see what on earth we're supposed to do 
to make sure these no-go zones, uh, I guess, don't eventually appear here in the United States as well. Amos, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Is is the United States a, a, t- a target for this? I mean, are we ever – we're probably not going to have the influx of refugees to the degree that uh, Europe is. I mean, people – it's a little harder to get to the United States. Do we need to worry about these type of no-go zones? I don't think so. I think that here in the, the American tradition is is twofold. One, you know, there used to be – you know, the little Italy's or Chinatown mm. or the Chinatowns, right? Um, Dearborn, Michigan, there's a large um, Arab population. In Toledo, there's a large Arab population. You know, historically, the Lower East Side of New York was, was very much of a, of a predominantly Jewish community. But almost all immigrant groups that have come to America, even if they live in a concentrated manner like Chinatown in San Francisco, are all about integrating into the American system, into the American value system. And that's not to say that there has not been um, discrimination against immigrants. We shouldn't paint a too rosy picture here. But immigrants who've come to America have very quickly bought into the American dream, into their ability to live the American dream, and are fully locked in on... Um, and, you know, it's a story that repeats itself time after time after time. The first generation, um, for instance, in the Arab communities, uh, like in the Jewish communities, they, right, first generation works with, they have little grocery stores. Mm. Second, for one reason and one reason only, and that's to be able to make enough money to send their children off to educate their children. Because immigrants here, when they've come to the United States, have always, the first generation worked as hard as hard can be to their credit with one purpose – to be able to provide educational opportunities for their children, that they understood that education was the way to integrate into the American system. That's the essence of the American values. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's Europe, that's a great blessing, right? Europe, that they that there's that legacy of that. Totally, totally. Um, and I speak to you, by the way, as somebody whose parents who, whose parents immigrated to the United States in 1963 from Israel. So I well understand, mm. you know, the immigrant mindset. Yeah. Where, Amos, where did your parents immigrate to? New York? My parents, uh, no, we moved to Ann Arbor, originally to Stockton, California, and then to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Neat, cool. Um, in Europe, there is, unfortunately, something called parallel societies. And that goes back to your no-go zones. That, that parallel society means that it's groups that are not, for lack of a better word, um, integrated into their particular the culture of where they live the country of where they live and they lead a parallel existence now there's a long discussion as to who's responsible for the for the parallel society is it that group that doesn't want to uh, integrate or is it the the traditional population that doesn't want the refugees to be integrated into Hmm. you know that's a whole different discussion but here in the united states we don't have this idea of parallel societies because what we have here is that people um, who move here, come here for the American dream or what they perceive to be the American dream, that the opportunities are available and it's up to you to take advantage of that. And the result of that is that by and large, again, one needs to be careful here not to paint this rosy, too rosy picture, but immigrants have opportunities available to them here. Um, and, and there's no doubt that a significant percentage of the immigrants take advantage of that. And there's no better proof of that. And walk around college campuses, and you'll see um, 
how multi-ethnic it is, mm. how, how, right, how diverse it is. That, I think, is, is absolutely a wonderful thing to see. That, that, that is, that's the sign, know, huh? That's great. Know, we both know that, that at the end of the day, it's, um, it's all about education. Right. Yeah, because that, that integrates the information, right, the, and the dreams and the opportunities. And it, and it minimizes, not 100%, but it minimizes walls between groups, right? So if group A's child is studying in a college with group B's child, um, they're sitting in the same classroom. That wall that existed between, between distinct societies, um, again, one shouldn't exaggerate, it doesn't 100% um, eviscerate, but it clearly is diminished. And I think that is essential for successful integration. Hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that, that same integration is, is what's happening in Europe. And that's the whole da- that's the danger of the parallel society, that it um, maintains the wall between traditional society and the immigrant society. Well, and by the way, it's important to add and just one more point. Yeah, please go ahead. It's important to add that um, the, the the walls in Europe have now gone beyond the first generation. They've gone beyond the second generation, right? In terms of, for instance, you think about England, Pakistanis who came to England in the 50s, right? It's, it's, it's initially the male who comes, he works, and then he, he has his wife come, and then their children come. So we're second and third generation. And, for instance, in England, what's disturbing to observe is that the first generation, it's opposite of the American model. The first generation works in order to create opportunities for the second generation. In England, the, the, the radicalization has occurred not amongst the first generation, but has occurred amongst the second and third generation, meaning that those who were born in England, right, they didn't come to England, they were born in yeah. England, they ostensibly should be members of English society, um, which is what their parents were hoping for. They are the ones who are being radicalized. So it's not the first generation, because the first generation creates, seeks to create opportunities. It's the second and third generation that are being radicalized. That is very different from the American model. That is different. And then and then the first generation, they're kind of trapped, right? These are their kids. And um, what do you do? Turn in your families? I mean, that, that's... Huge. You're absolutely right. So... Um, they're trapped. Really inter- into a country, too, trapped. that doesn't... That they don't... They haven't been integrated into. They, and, and they're stuck behind these walls and these no-go zones. But see, what's so interesting is if you... If you look, for instance, at the um, uh, the terrorist attack in, in Glasgow in Scotland, at, um, plus minus seven years ago, plus minus, those responsible for it um, were not lower. But this, I'm going to contradict what I said to you earlier, right? Because it is complicated. Yeah. Those responsible for that attack were not lower middle class um, immigrants or children of immigrants who hadn't succeeded, not in the least. Um, one or two of them were, were second generation indeed, but who were physicians, which means that they had made it. Mm-hmm. In spite of the fact that they had made it by our standards, right? Somebody who's a physician went to medical school, he's made it. He's, made, he's, in, he's integrated into society. Um, but proof in the pudding that they were the ones who, con- who carried out the terrorist attack, much in the same way that those who did 9-11, like Muhammad Atta, right? These were not lower middle class uneducated people. Muhammad Atta was responsible for you know, 9-11. Um, if I recall correctly, was um, living in Hamburg, was educated. I believe he was an engineer. So, but even and in spite of the fact that he was educated and successfully so, in spite of that, 
was not really integrated into German society, living in Hamburg and becoming a, a committed al-Qaeda terrorist. So the, you have then two distinct groups, and this is obviously from law enforcement's perspective, the intelligence community's perspective, where this gets extremely complicated. But the easy to radicalize are those who don't have economic opportunities. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer, right? Right. But if you also have physicians or and engineers who are willing to not only be radicalized, but are willing to commit serious acts of terrorism from a law enforcement perspective or an intelligence community's perspective, that's a, a very different challenge, is how to prevent the radicalization of somebody who seemingly, and the word seemingly here is important, has become a, has become a member of society, but clearly has not become a member of society. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and look how it legitimizes the call, you know, the call to arms, the call to action, because these are these are smart, intelligent, seemingly again, I guess, integrated people that aren't. I mean, it's 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 interesting. Wow. And one of the things I wanted to ask you too is, what's the impact of our political process on any of this? Um, is what Donald Trump uh, is what he says is what Ted Cruz uh, these words that they're all promoting. What does that do to uh, radicalization in the United States and abroad? It's an interesting question. So I spend, you know, a fair, as you know, a fair amount of my time um, traveling both internationally and domestically. Yeah. There's no doubt that Donald Trump's um, verbiage which which sometimes clearly morphs into um, xenophobia and, and, and nationalism and discrimination and no positives from me about him, <laughs> um, is clearly raising concerns um, amongst American allies as to what does this mean going forward. And the, the thought of, of, of an America, which is where he to become elected, right, where Immigrants are absolutely unwelcomed, um, and where America withdraws into itself the whole discussion of you know the future of NATO, um, clearly is, is is a source of, of of deep concern amongst American allies. I think it's not by chance that Secretary of State Kerry mentioned recently that every time he comes back from a visit, the first thing that I mean, every time he goes travels overseas, it's like you know people consistent foreign leaders are consistently asking him. Is Donald Trump for real, and are Donald Trump's comments for real? Um, and I would think that, from the perspective of, of foreign leaders who, you know, read the tea leaves, what they do, spend their day doing is reading the tea leaves of America. There's no doubt that that the possibility of Trump as president, from their perspective, would would result in a in a, in a dramatic slash drastic realignment of how the world views America and how America views the world. Mm. And I would think, from the perspective of of, of Immigrants who've come to America would like to come to America. The kind of America that, that Trump articulates is a very different America than the, the traditional American values. But here, too, we need to be careful. Right? Um, I remind you that that there has been in America previous strains of, of xenophobia, where there was, the, you know, like the know nothings. There has been previous strains in America of, of, you know, pointing the finger at. I remind you of McCarthyism. Right. So this is cyclical, but there's, I don't think there's any doubt that Trump, I think, I think more than Cruz, um, is a source 
of, of real concern amongst American allies. And I can tell you that uh, Israeli friends are consistently asking me to explain the, the Trump phenomenon, and, and European colleagues ask me <laughs> the same thing. And uh, where is this coming from and where does this mean? Um, and not only in terms of how would, does this impact America, but from their particular perspective, what would this mean in terms of America's relations with whatever European country or America's relationship yeah. with Israel? Oh, yeah. In fact, and he even brought up, and we've got to go, but he brought up the whole let's – we need to send police into these communities in the United States. So, what, but, so I mean, you know what? That's interesting. Yeah. When, when it was Cruz who said um, we need to monitor Muslim neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. So I – when I hear those phrases, which are 20-second soundbite, I have no idea if Senator Cruz meant those words, didn't mean those words, if it was – Targeting you know, just came out. Yeah, he was targeting some audience probably at the time. That's right. Yeah, but those words. First of all, monitoring is monitoring a Muslim neighborhood. I don't know what that means, and I don't know how you monitor a Muslim neighborhood. <laughs> right. But there's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that you know words are important. We can never forget that, and words are captured, particularly social media today. Right. We both know that. Right. Right. No, it's true. I felt that that. Senator Cruz's comments were as irresponsible as irresponsible can be, um, and I found them. You mentioned earlier that I teach criminal procedure. Yeah, I spend a lot of my time talking to my students about you know the protection of individual liberties and the balancing between the public good and individual liberties. When I heard Senator Cruz mention those 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 words, uh, I was um, deeply deeply concerned. And whether he meant it or not, I leave to him. Yeah, but, but those those kinds of words are are dangerous. I agree, and I think that's that's why I love having you on, Amos, because you you know and you know what we should say and what we what we can't say. Amos Giora, we thank you so much for your great work. Continue there at the University of Utah, folks. It's a complicated issue, except uh, it's real. It's happening, and our words matter, and our integration of people into our communities also matter which is a, a, apparently a beautiful gift we have here in the United States. We need, to, we need to push even harder on it to allow even more integration, more full uh, joy and, and gathering and taking on of the American dream for all people involved. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? And again, be grateful you live in the United States um, where it's we don't have that huge push of refugees coming over from war-torn areas. Um, so it's it changes a little bit of that. Well, some would say, yeah, but the borders, sure, okay. It's... It's different. It's it's the difference between coming to the United States for the American dream versus coming to the United States to set up, you know, an, a terrorist, you know, enclave that can fight against the, the, the West. Different mentality. But one of the things that I think we could all pay more attention to is we we have refugees coming and – are we integrating these people? Are we helping them figure out how to find jobs? Are we helping them 
make sure that they can make their own living? Are we integrating them into the American dream? Or do we just kind of shelf them and put them away in a community where the these, you know, an enclave, a community that just lives within itself, talks only to itself, only has its own version of of reality. And we've got to watch out for that because many times in our own neighborhoods, we're not there. We're not offering integration. We're not having our children play with their children. Um, we look at them differently. And that, that just can't be if we want to be safe and if we want to uh, treat everybody as, you know, children of God that they are. Anyway, and, and you can be safe, right? We can be safe and we can be safe together. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us with more ideas, tools to help you live longer, love stronger. Next hour, we'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this show to show you uh, some real-life solutions to your problems, possibly. Today we will be talking about the millennials. Oh, the dreaded millennial. As I look at Ben. Millennials, sometimes, you know, they get, uh, they're getting this bad reputation. Like they don't want to work. These are people that don't want to work. Slackers. But uh, are we just misunderstanding the millennial generation? Perhaps so. Our guest, JT O'Donnell, will be joining us. She is the founder and CEO of CareerHMO.com, and uh, she will be talking to us about millennials and what the studies say about millennials, how they handle their work, what what motivates them, what doesn't. So we'll get to her in just a few minutes. It's also, by the way, walk on your wild side day. So if you've ever had just a hankering to go be walking on your wild side, today's the day. I got totally wild today. I wore dress uh, dress pants instead of Levi's. Mm-hmm. Normally, I'm sporting some Levi's. Wow. You would think that's not wild, but... Yeah, I, I didn't even notice. Yeah. Don't you notice I'm walking differently? Walking a little bit more formally. It's a more formal walk. Um, also, it's grilled cheese sandwich day, which, you know, you, how can you go wrong with grilled cheese? I ask you, how can you go wrong? So we'll be talking about all of this, but first let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. In an interview with USA Today, Donald Trump suggested he would maybe reach out to Marco Rubio for a potential vice presidential spot. He says, there are people I have in mind in terms of vice president. I just haven't told anybody names. I do like Marco. I do like Kasich. I do like Scott Walker. Actually, in a lot of ways, I hit him very hard, but I've always liked him. Previously, he had, uh, Trump had suggested that he'd pick a vice president with more experience than himself. Rubio and Trump left things on a bad note prior to Rubio dropping out of the race. Hundreds of protesters were arrested outside the U.S. Capitol on Monday after staging a sit-in to demand an end to corrupt practices of campaign finance, voting rights, and redistricting. More than 400 people were arrested for unlawful demonstration and will be charged with crowding 
obstructing and incommoding. What? Incommoding. It's what? a technical term used by the Capitol Police. And it means... They were in, in, in accommodated, right? Okay. They didn't accommodate the police with the uh, protest. Oh, I so would say unaccommodated. They call it in accommodating. In accommodating. Huh. Yes, yeah, so complicated. So in other words, they're arrested. Members of the Democratic Spring, the name of the group protesting campaign, they first began marching towards Washington on April 2nd in Philadelphia. I'm not sure if they walked the whole way. Wow. Because that's quite a distance. I bet they walked, bust, then got out, then walked again. Plain streams and, and automobiles. And incommodated. Top U.S. health officials said the Zika virus is scarier than initially thought, and the mosquito-borne virus is now present in about 30 states. Ann Shuket, the principal director, uh, deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, warned that mosquito eradication and vaccine research may not be able to catch up as summer fast approaches. According to the most recent CDC reports, there are 346 cases of Zika confirmed in the continental U.S. Mm. Of those, 32 were pregnant women and seven cases were sexually transmitted. Shuket also warns that Puerto Rico could face hundreds of thousands of Zika infections and hundreds of affected babies. The CDC concerns come as the Obama administration continues to pressure Congress to approve about $1.9 billion in emergency funding for Zika preparedness. Hmm. That's scary. Yes. A little positive note there. Uh, smokers who are out of work are less likely than non-smokers to find a job, and once they do, they earn less. Stanford researchers reported mm. this on Monday. The study is one of the few to show that smoking is a cause and not an effect of not getting hired and it measures just how much smoking costs the average person, about $8,300 a year. Among smokers' reemployment at one year, on average, their hourly income was $5 less relative to reemployed nonsmokers. Wow. Just is this. It's a 25% difference is in Is it pay. because of a bro- they take breaks? What is, I mean, they're less. What is it? That's weird. Yeah. They didn't give any sort of indication whether it's some they sort of smell prejudice. smell like smoke. Is it a prejudice on the higher side? Is it. Mm-hmm. Is it something they're doing as an employee? Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a smoker's break. Like ben always goes out and takes an ice cream break. Yeah, that's a little annoying. I, think, I mean, and that's definitely lowered his earning abilities. Well, I didn't have much to begin with, so. Yeah, sorry. And finally, yeah, the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, will not allow any new bowl games until after the 2019 season. This according this is uh, according to reports on ESPN and CBS Sports. Oh boy! In 2015, there was such a shortage of qualified teams to fill the 41 postseason games that three of the football teams selected had losing records. Yeah. Now the rule is you have to be at least 500 uh, on the season. So yeah. win you know win and lose half and half. But teams couldn't fill that rule. There right? weren't enough winning teams. There weren't enough winning teams, so they had to take some losing so, teams to fill 41 uh, positions in these games. Because Ben and I had this great idea, that we were going to have a bowl game called Taser Bowl. Taser Bowl. Taser! It. Don't you think that would be a great bowl? So this is from this quote here. It said, there is an excess of bowl games and due in part to a, a desperate allocation of openings versus conference bowl histories. There's the Mountain West Conference Commissioner Craig Thompson. There is a consensus change. There is a consensus changes needed, and this year's outcome must not be repeated. Hmm. The NCAA enacted a similar three-year moratorium. There you go, moratorium in 2011, after which six new bowl games were created. So, Uh, Ben, there's 41 bowl games. I know, but we wanted to do our bowl game, and I think because the loser of our bowl game gets tased by the winning team. Oh. 
There you go. That big, great TV. So the very end of the game, we line everybody up, player against player, and you then tase it. Tase it. But the thing is, like, they get tased as many points that they lost by, right? Yeah. You know how they make people do push-ups? Right. We call them tase-ups. Tase-ups. Yeah. Because when you're tased, you kind of flip up. Or, or tase huh. downs, fall to the ground. Depends. See, that could be interesting. If you create some sort of a pad that you could lay a, a mat of some kind to lay underneath somebody, <gasps> as they do the push-up, when they make contact, it tases them and encourages yeah. them to pop we, back up we in call a push-up. A, a gentle nudge. You could do it in a, a sit-up fashion where you lean back and uh-huh. it, it pops you back yeah. up. Yeah. Well, I like be... it. We could call it. We we could call it the mat, the tase mat. The Dr. Matt. The Dr. Tase Matt. The Matt Tazen. We're going to have to workshop this. Hey, let's workshop it. We Try put that, yeah, write that down. We'll workshop this in our meeting today. That'll be great. Okay. I love it. So, are we going to talk about the show at all or just this nah, idea? Let's, okay. just, let's get this well, idea good. worked out. This is a huge part of the show. Okay. There's much time spent discussing tasers. I look at it this way if this taser thing goes off and works and takes off, like, and we make a ton of money, we may not need to worry about the show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, I, I caught you. We'll be loaded. Excellent. With people tasing people. Well, it's sad, I guess. So the bowl game's out. Uh, check that off the list, too. Cause, okay. But we're going to, yeah, we're going to workshop the other ideas today. Hey, uh, in a minute, we'll be bringing on J.T. O'Donnell, who's going to walk us through uh, emerging millennial mindsets. Do you think this millennial thing's weird? You work with millennials, 18 to 34-year-olds. I do. Do you think it's real? I am an honorary millennial, according to the millennials here in the building. No, it doesn't work that way. You actually have they to have, file to the have... Millennial Association. It's a well, national charter. No, we, we made him a T-shirt. He's in. What does the T-shirt say? Honorary millennial. It's like your honorary doctorate that you have. It's not an honorary doctorate. Oh. It is a real doctorate. Oh, I keep getting that mixed up. Sorry. Yeah, no, I would take an honorary doctorate if any school out there is giving one away because then I'd have two doctorates. Then I'd be Dr. Dr. Matt. See, and I accepted the honorary millennial. I, I don't know that I believe in everything about these millennials. What? I Do mean, you... they, people just attribute everything that a, third or a 20-something does to just being a millennial. See, and I think they're, they're young people. Mm-hmm. Right, they're just beginning on their their steps in in adult life. Right, they're heavily laden down with debt and they're cranky. They're cranky, and go. they were raised by the X gens and the Y gens and the and yeah. officially being one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're messed up too. Right. So, what do you expect? But I don't think I don't know. We'll find so out. So, are the Gen Xers are they the coddlers that created the mentality of the millennial? I don't know if the Gen Xer did. I think the baby boomer created the coddling of Gen X. Gen X. Which got worse and continued with. Yeah. Millenn- wow. So it's boomer's fault. It's a little different. Aren't you guys the greatest generation? I'm not a boomer. I'm an Xer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Again. That's okay. That's okay. Um, <laughs> no, I don't want credit for the booming generation and I don't want credit for the millennial generation. All right. Hey, speaking of generation. Did you hear this story about the Archbishop of Canterbury? Oh, Unbelievable. About his father? At the age of 60, yeah. he learns that his father is not the man he thought he was. Hmm. So the Archbishop of Canterbury has learned at the age of 60 that his father was not the man that had raised him, who was an alcoholic, 
named Gavin Welby. Um, it, it's the Archbishop's name is Justin Welby. He had been raised by an, a man, an alcoholic, who died about forty years ago. But he found out that his father was Winston Churchill's private secretary, hmm. Sir Anthony Montague Brown. And at the age of sixty, uh, like a news agency brought him this evidence to prove that his dad is Anthony Montague Brown, who uh, I guess everybody knew about in England. They, this guy mm. was a really well-known, revered kind of socialite. But now he's like, that's my dad. And the mom, who's still alive, was like, oh, yeah. You know, I don't remember much about that time. So did they lie to him or was the other guy Pretty the, much. the drunkard was he part of his life? She – the drunkard was part of his life okay, and raised him. And mom was also an alcoholic. And so she said, I don't remember all the details of what happened, but I do remember that I was with him and with Sir uh, – I don't know if he's a sir, but Anthony Montague Brown. And it appears – this is what she said. Although my recollection of events is patchy, I now recognize that during the days leading up to my very sudden marriage – uh, and fueled by a large amount of alcohol on Apparently. both sides, I went to bed with Sir or with Anthony Montague Brown. Williams says it appears that the precautions taken didn't work, and my wonderful son is conceived as a result of this liaison. And he is now the Bishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury. Huh. And at age sixty, um, he's finding this out, and they did a DNA test, and yeah. Surprise! And they, in fact, they used the hairbrush of Montague Brown. They got his DNA off of his own brush that had never been moved by his. This sounds like a really bad episode of Jerry Springer. Isn't it amazing? This is the archbishop. This is the highest ranking (laughs) member of the church of England. Wow. Unbelievable. And he, you know, he still loves Gavin, his dad. The man. Maybe he could inherit a lot of money. I don't know. What do you think? Crazy. I mean, wouldn't that be weird to find out, you know, something like, hey, your dad's not your dad. I'm pretty sure my dad might be Julius Irving. Really? Yeah. Wow. Just the way I hoop it up. Really? Your lack of height really shows that off, too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, maybe I was the runt of the litter. Maybe. Maybe you got what was left over in the genetic pool. But I asked my mom and she's never met the guy. Okay. Well, so it's not him. Keep hope alive. Ah. I don't know. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Anyway, everybody out there in listener land, be careful. Take a good look at your dad again. Thank him. Is for, he really your dad? Is he, he is, of course. But can you imagine at age 60 finding out he's not? That's crazy. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. Come back. Uh, We're going to explore the emerging millennial mindsets in the workplace. Our expert, J.T. O'Donnell, will be joining us. She's going to talk about two different mindsets you might see uh, working with the millennials that uh, you get to hang out with. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Unlocking the Millennial Mystery. Welcome back, friends. 
to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nowadays, a hot term that we all hear used uh, and thrown around, I think, everywhere is this term millennial. Well, exactly what designates a millennial and why are there so many differences between them and the generation before them? Studies show that in today's world, millennials handle situations much differently than those generations before them. But does that mean their methods are wrong or just misunderstood? Uh, Miss J.T. O'Donnell, founder and CEO of CareerHMO.com, joins us this morning uh, to help us get some new insights into how these uh, millennial generations are dealing with adversity and uh, helping us better understand their differences. Good morning, J.T. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Honored to have you. And uh, I'm excited about this this discussion because I, I work with millennials all As over the I. place. As do you, right? Now, you wrote yes, this article yes. in Inc. Magazine. Um, you contributed to it. And uh, two emerging millennial mindsets in the workplace. First of all, just explain to us the age. What What is the age range of a millennial? So everyone out there in listener land yeah. knows. Yeah, so it's anybody that was born in the 80s and 90s, and if you want to be particular, they say the official start date was 1982, and the official end date was 2004. Okay. Uh, and so millennials, as you spoke of over those course of 20 years, have been raised differently. And as adults and entering into the workplace, we're seeing some pretty significant differences. Uh, and the article that I wrote about uh, talked about sort of a splitting of them, because now they're starting to get into their late 20s, have some work experience underneath their belt, and have had these experiences that are sending them in two different directions. And it was very apparent through a very public exchange between two young millennial women. Hmm. <laughs> this is, um, to me, I loved it. And I, I I sometimes worry when we put people in these generational categories because sometimes they don't fit, right? They don't fit. And I think that that was the point of the article that I wanted to show people is just how different these two women were approaching their situation so that we don't put them all in one category. And yeah. so, you know, you had one one woman who uh, was very upset, very vocal, very public, uh, uh, did a lot of employer shaming to her employer about, you know, hey, you're the reason my, my whole life is a mess. <laughs> and then you had another woman step in and write a pretty scathing rebuttal to this young woman saying, you know, I was in the same exact situation you were, probably worse, and I didn't approach it this way. And here's what I've learned along the way. And so um, it really comes down down to, I, I think, seeing which millennials are acquiring grit mm-hmm. and which ones aren't. Oh, interesting. And so walk us through some of your learnings. What, what are you seeing, um, you know, because they are upset. This is, this is a generation that is upset and, and probably warranted, right? Justifiably so. Most definitely. And I can point to four major things that says they are entitled to be upset. First of all, they're the most educated and the least professionally mature. So all of them have a lot of college debt, major college debt. And that's point number two that they're carrying that previous generations did not have. Um, And then you go into the fact that they're the most underemployed. 26% of them are underemployed. Mm. They're not using their skill sets. So they're not engaged at work, right? They're there all day long feeling um, not properly utilized. Um, And then that fourth one is the fact that they lack coping skills and skills for failure. So when you're raised in a generation where everybody gets a participation prize, and there's a lot of that external motivators, which was heavily embraced with the millennial generation. It's great. It incented them. It motivated them externally. But when you get to work, that paycheck and that job 
is your reward. Right. So you're not going to get that praise and those, you know, participation prizes. You really have to change gears. Well, they haven't been taught that. And so suddenly you're coping with not being perceived as uh, doing a good job and, and getting criticized. And they haven't really been taught how to deal with that. And they're, when you say they're most educated, but least mature, I guess that's because, you know, the other generations have to hang on and work longer, right? So they're highly educated, but they can't progress in their jobs because no one's leaving. Partially true, yeah. So people are seeing longer, but actually less than 30% of millennials have held uh, internships or jobs that have real work-related skills, right? Um, They've been in organized sports and activities their entire lives. They've been heavily scheduled, but not necessarily in work environments. So it's one thing to go to school and get a degree. It's another to have practical experience where you understand what it's like to be on the job. And so they're coming into the workplace without those skills, and they're really being affected by it. That's true. I guess that would then hold them back, right? Because... Very much so. Anybody that's been working, yeah. Yeah, employers don't want to be your parents, Mm -hmm. you know. And so we have uh, millennials arriving on the scene and saying, well, hey, you know, you should be coaching me. And that's not how the employers see it. And, you know, hey, you know, my happiness is important. Well, not to the employer it isn't. You know, (laughs) you're being paid to do a job, figure out your own happiness. So there's this steep learning curve that's going on in those first few years of a millennial's life out in the work world. Um, And, you know, that's why I have great compassion for them because they weren't prepared for this. It's kind of like throwing the baby in the deep end of the pool and saying swim, right? And they weren't given the right tools. Well, yeah. And uh, and they even got into the debt probably not knowingly, right? They just thought they were doing what everyone does. Yeah. Oh, completely unaware, right? And and for many, overpaying for an education and um, not thinking about it. And, you know, I've had parents call me and say, why did I pay for this education? And the first thing I ask them is, you know, do you, do you have investments? Do you, do you have a 401k? Do you manage financial investments? Oh, of course. Do you completely ignore your financial planner? No, I check in all the time. Did you check in all the time over those four years of that college education? Were you really looking at what was going into that investment? Because... Again, young people today are just doing what they were told to do, right? Go to school, and when you graduate, you'll get a great job. And they went on autopilot only to find out that's not the case. So true. So in a way, um, the, if we needed somebody to blame, the millennials could look to their parents. They could. They could also look to the system. Uh, you know, schools are charging a lot of money, and yet very few schools have formal programs where students should be doing internships all four years. There's no required coursework around identifying career paths and developing your career skills. Honestly, going to the career center is a voluntary thing that most young people aren't thinking about till second semester senior year of college, in which case they go there and the center is inundated and they probably don't get the resources that they needed that they actually paid for. Mm-hmm. So. We're really hoping to see a, a system reform in colleges, and I really encourage people today to, to go back and utilize those resources because you paid for them. Right. Is, um, these, it's so interesting. All these little things have added up. The systems, the – I mean, I guess this is why they don't buy into government. This is maybe why they don't buy into religious systems to the same level as previous generations. They, they do. In a lot of ways, they, they feel like if you think about those being incentivized and, and all the coaching, right, they were yeah. very trusting. This is an incredibly trusting and optimistic generation. And all of a sudden, they're finding out, wow, it's not really as it was presented to me. And I, I can understand the anger and the bitterness, but I have to say, I also believe in them, right? They, they've One of the things about learning and being coached your whole life is that um, previous generations see coaching as a sign of weakness. Right, right. right. Get coached. There was something wrong with you. This generation understands it's a path to greatness, 
And so what I believe is that they're going to go out and they're going to get coaching. And obviously we're seeing signs of that. And that's why we do what we do because they know if I, okay, so I'm now learning things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But I also know if I can get the right information and the right support, I can turn things around. And that's what I believe in for them. And I, I know they are going to be an amazing generation as they take over. I mean, they make up 50% of our workforce now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, they're, and they're a beautiful generation in that they're more open-minded, right? They're more – they're less likely to be racially driven or biased. And, I mean, it's – there's a lot of benefit to also being raised in the information age. You know, and that's the thing that um, we talk about helicopter parenting and all of that as a bad thing, but I don't know that it was. I'm just saying that it's given some of these results, Mm -hmm. but I also think about that nurturing and supportive and inclusionary and and how, like you said, they're just so so much more um, understanding. I think that that's going to work to their advantage. They're just hitting a phase right now where that reality is setting in. And, and as we saw with those two young women, some take it one way and some take it the other way. What I think is happening right now is that they're developing grit, which is mental toughness. And I heard somebody refer to it almost as an acronym, guts, resilience, integrity, and tenacity. Hmm. And I love that because uh, these young people are going to get their grit. They're going to pick themselves up. They're going to be brave. They're going to keep pushing forward and they're going to do what's right. And so you know, as tough as it is right now, I think they're getting that grit and they're going to do great things. That's amazing. What um, it's as we look at with our with our millennials, uh, th- this this division, I guess there really are two sides to it. You can be the victim of the millennial mindset or you can kind of be like you're saying, have the grit. What do you sense was the difference between these two women that you highlighted? Well, so. Here's the way I look at it is that they, everyone goes in, millennials go in hoping to be coached. Again, this idea of we've been coached our whole lives. In the working world, you need to earn coaching. And to do that, you have to do certain things and earn respect and earn trust because the employer is not going to invest in you and coach you and take you under their wing and mentor you if you're not showing these things. And so you know, I wrote a, an article on Inc. about it, about the five reasons millennials aren't getting promoted. When you get promoted, you get coached. You get mentored. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the first things that we see is that they're a clock puncher. This one woman, really, you could tell that she was just going in, doing the job only when she had to and was leaving, whereas the other woman was really putting in the extra time and energy beyond her normal job because she knew it would pay off later on. Um, Second piece, kind of hand in hand with that, no initiative. She was really only doing her job, the one that was complaining and and upset, whereas the other gal said, hey, I'm going to take initiative. I'm going to shine on my own. Um, And then thirdly, and this is a big one, pointing out problems versus offering solutions. Right. So when you go in every day to work and you're telling the powers to be what's wrong with the place, but you're not offering any ideas of how to solve it or stepping up and trying to solve it yourself, that was a big delineator between the two of them. Um, And then the last two, one is slow, just being slow and and setting weak deadlines, long deadlines. Um, We find with a lot of millennials that they want to get things perfect. And so they were also allowed to take extra time to do things. But that's not how it works in the working world. There's a premium on timeliness and getting things done faster and and a hustle. That's really the word, to to hustle. Um, And then lastly, that ties to enthusiasm. Do you care about the place? Do you, are you proud of what they do? Are you displaying that attitude of, of being proud of working at that company? I mean, this company's paying you. They want to see that you're happy. And when you have that disenchanted attitude, which we saw in that, that first woman, um, she ended up getting fired, mm. right? And, that, and that's, that's the piece of it. So really looking at that delineation, if you can do these things early on in your career, you will stand out as a millennial and you will get that coaching. That is – that's it. It's, and it's such – it's such basic advice, right? It's yet it's 
it's so almost foreign sometimes to a lot of us. Well, and that's why we're, why we're trying to get it out there, right? Yeah. You're so right. I wish it's not rocket science. It is basic advice, but for whatever reason, it wasn't disseminated Mm-mm. to millennials, right? And so they're going into work um, coming across as entitled and lazy and not caring, and that's not the case at all. It's just they weren't given these guidelines that they could really stand out. And I know they do want to stand out, and I will tell you the ones that do this – they stand out so fast because yeah. nobody else is, right? And then all of a sudden, they're getting promoted inside of a year. Let me tell you, number one complaint of corporate America right now is that we don't have enough talent. There's a massive talent shortage going on because there's only 46 million Gen Xers, my generation. Yeah. There's 77 million millennials. And yet the millennials aren't ready for management. But I'll tell you something, companies are going to be promoting the rock stars. You're going to see a lot of millennials in their early 20s becoming managers because they chose to embrace this and, and wanted to get ahead. But it really is, it's a shift, I guess. And, and so as a parent of millennials, what, what would you suggest I do to um, maybe reinform, re-coach, uh, reinvigorate the, the, the exhausted millennial? Right. Well, so I think the first thing that, that is really good is to sit down and talk to them about the difference between external and internal motivation. Because external motivation is those rewards. I get paid, I get benefits, I get perks. And internal motivation is doing something because it impresses you. You care about it. Um, Because the sooner a young person can tap into their internal motivation for work, the faster their career will go. We have seen it time and time again. So find that problem bigger than yourself that you care about and find companies that are working on that problem and and work for those companies. Because that will drive you. Yeah. You'll want to get up and go to work every day. And if, and that's one of the most simple pieces of advice we can give young people, but it's a massive transformation when they go to a, uh, from a work environment where they're not feeling tied and where they're not feeling like they're, they're having that to where they are. It's, it's a big, big difference. Second thing is help manage their expectations. There's been a lot of pressure put on this generation that they're supposed to change the world or they're supposed to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Right? right. We tell them they can be anything they want to be, but that's like taking them to an ice cream parlor and saying, there's 365 flavors. You've got three seconds to pick one. <laughs> that's really intense, right? Yeah. So the other thing to do is scale it back. Get them some coaching, some skills assessment. Let them figure out what they're good at and what they're not good at. Because when they know their strengths and they know what problem they want to solve, now they can massively narrow down the options and make an informed choice about a career direction they want to go in. And that hasn't been done for them. Right. I mean, that's again, it's it, but it is it's slowing them down, getting the right vision and then and making it intr- intrinsic. It's almost like some of the people I work with, they're so motivated on the intrinsic side that they almost don't want to do the other work. They they only <laughs> want to fulfill their mission. And yet sometimes you got to pay the piper first. Right. In order to have the, the benefit of fulfilling the, the fully intrinsic mission. You absolutely do. And that's part of the reason I encourage people to find a company where the purpose is there because you are going to have to. We call it paying dues and people cringe when they hear that, right? But it's not really paying dues. It goes back to that earlier conversation we had about um, being professionally immature. Like it or not, there's been a lot of things you haven't learned yet, just about basic day-to-day business and work. And if you can, you know, put your time in and really get focused, you can close the gap on that pretty fast. But there's going to be a span there of a few years where you've got to get up to speed. Yeah. Now, is this what you're doing on your website, careerhmo.com? It is. It is. So we we saw the trend of, of the need for career coaching. We also saw that it needed to be affordable. So the idea was if we could create the Netflix 
of career improvement on a subscription model, make it affordable and accessible to everyone, could that help people? And mm. so we tested the model and it, it was successful. And so it's really been designed with millennials in mind because we want to be their career coaches for a lifetime, not just help them find a job, but hey, you get in the job and you have that first conversation with a coworker or boss and you're a little nervous, who do you talk to? How yeah. do you get the answers about how to approach that conversation or how to plan for your promotion or you know, how to deal with that first failure on the job? Uh, they need that resource consistently. And so that's why we built Courage Mom. It's and a health maintenance organization. That is such a great uh, career HMO. That it, it's again, parents should also be listening up, thinking, "Oh, okay, maybe I could take my my uh, millennial to career HMO and help you know pay for their own uh, their own career pro- you know coach." Yeah, it's it's definite. Uh, you know, when we designed it, it's nine dollars a month, so it's really been built so that those millennials can do it for themselves. Yeah, it's brilliant. Right? So we, yeah, we want them to to get that help. They deserve it. And there's probably nothing more exciting than when we get emails every day saying, "I just got a job at my bucket list company." A bucket list company is a company that you identified as one of the top twenty places you want to work, and we teach all of them how to do that, and then how to network and connect with those companies so that they can get an interview. And it it's just the best feeling in the world because you know it that very moment, that millennial has been changed forever. They now are totally empowered and understand how to approach their career. You bet. Absolutely. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's a great resource. And again, a sign of the times where millennials can now go access the information the way they probably are used to accessing it as well. They are. It's all video based. That's so great. <laughs> JT O'Donnell, we appreciate you and your great work on that uh, Inc. magazine as well. Uh, article, Two Emerging Millennial Mindsets in the Workplace. Thank you, JT, for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. You bet. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and uh, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Help you understand understand better your millennials doing what we can here, folks. Making, uh, you know, making you live a little healthier, love a little stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. You know millennials, you know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They've they were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking too. So let me give you some other coaching tools, and this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem, right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, The first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. 
So when somebody comes to ask me a um, you know a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can – uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I, I, want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question and they're like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise, but you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, One reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school and I was his same age and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him – By just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? 
Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because – and push with questions and let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like – You really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just I – I, I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard, but – then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concern about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son and – She's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like you know retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on. And you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that 
you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. That's one of the weirdest things I learned being a kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Fun stuff, folks. Coaching the people we love. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the or second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as we're wrapping up uh, this uh, this second hour of the show, Terry just came in with pressing breaking news. Matt, you, you have said before you are a fan of Chick-fil-A. I like me some Chick-fil-A. Ch- I am the healthiest human ever known to man. And their Ch- potato fries are to die for. Chick-fil-A is shunning a not-so-nutritious ingredient. Not the Chick-fil-A sauce, which boasts 140 calories of serving, Ugh. 13 grams of fat, yes, I 120 milligrams of, sh- of uh, salt. Instead, it's their iceberg lettuce. What? We have a mandate. Never use iceberg lettuce, the restaurant vice president of menu strategy and development tells Business Insider. It's at the bottom of the salad food chain, he adds. There's no nutritional value in iceberg lettuce. That's actually not true. Iceberg lettuce contains vitamin A and K. But other leafy vegetables, like kale, are more more nutritious. Yeah. So while there's no official ban in place at Chick-fil-A over iceberg lettuce, you could see other, other, uh, like romaine or kale, could be on the menu. No kale. For your your sandwiches. No kale can be on the menu. They're moving towards superfoods. They have a salad of broccolini, kale, sour cherries. Stop it. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. So they might m- remove iceberg lettuce, and I you may they already see, did, and they just put a pickle on. You'll see kale or maybe uh, a romaine type <laughs> lettuce because they're more nutritional for you. No. Do you like the iceberg lettuce? You like your your fluff sure. of water? I don't. Do you care? I don't. I just want the Chick Fil A. That's all I want. Yeah. The rest of it's just you know with some pickles on it. So they're going to change your lettuce part, possibly. Listen. A nice kale chicken sandwich. Chick. Listen to me. Oh. 
Don't kale. do it. It's gross. Don't don't mess it up with kale. <laughs> I know it's a superfood. Whatever on earth that means. But you've got a super sandwich right now, even if it has iceberg lettuce on it. Don't do it. Trust me. I'm a professional. I eat a lot of this yummy Chick-fil-A. It will ruin your relationships if and you eat it. And don't touch the waffle fries ever. They're so good. We'll take a break, folks. Hour number two in the books. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, your coach. We do what we can on this program to help you get the information you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Today, no exception. Welcome to the program. We, uh, in just a few minutes, will be talking with Dr. Ron Hager, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences here at uh, Brigham Young University. We will be discussing hypertension and aging also known as the Matt Townsend Disorder, hypertension and aging. Apparently, uh, it's going to get us one way or another. And if you like uh, throwing back the salt, you know, it might be impacting your your heart. I don't know what it is, but uh, day after day, Ben brings in salty uh, treats. I think he's trying to slowly murder me. Is that true, Benjamin? I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't? Okay. Well, you know I can't have them, but you keep bringing them. And Making some sea salt ice cream, though, if you ever want that. Oh, I'd like to try that. Are you? Okay. When are we going to have that done? Bring it in. Just, I mean, put something else in it other than just sea salt. No, it's going to – I'm replacing the sugar with salt. Make a make – a, ooh, make a French fry ice cream. Mm. French fry and ketchup. Oh, now you're talking – my heart rate just went up. I just cleaned my tub so I can probably Oh, perfect. Do New that. batch. New batch. <laughs> the, his roommate just cleaned the tub slash shower combo, which means ice cream's coming tonight. <laughs> that is sad but totally true. Hey, uh, we're going to be getting uh, to Dr. Hager in just a few minutes to talk about hypertension. Um, also, we do want to celebrate, of course, Walk on Your Wild Side Day. And grilled cheese sandwich day. We'll ask the good doc if uh, that's healthy for us, a good grilled cheese sandwich. But first, let's get to the headlines with Ben Carson. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Thank you very much, Matt. Hillary Clinton still leads the Democratic field nationally with 49% among Democrats and Democratic leaners, while Bernie Sanders has support from 43% of the Democratic electorate. In the Republican primary race, Donald Trump continues to lead the field by 16 points, ahead of both Senator Ted Cruz and Governor John Kasich. When given the choice between Clinton and Cruz, registered voters are fairly split. 37% would vote for Clinton, and 32% would vote for Cruz. Between Clinton and Trump, 38% would vote for Clinton, and 36% would vote for Trump. Experts warned Monday that the mosquito-borne Zika virus is more dangerous than initially expected. Dr. Ann Shuckett, the principal deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says most of what we've learned is not reassuring. Everything we look at with this virus seems to be a bit scarier than we initially thought. 
According to the CDC, the mosquito species that spreads Zika is present in 30 states. The virus is also being linked to more medical conditions that go beyond a birth defect that causes a smaller brain size. For more than a century, the National Weather Service has issued its forecasts in all capital letters. But since that's considered yelling in the age of social media, next month federal meteorologists are lowering their voices and their letters, except in dire emergencies. Weather Service spokesman Susan Buchanan said the agency started using all capital letters in 1849 forecast because of the telegraph. Twenty years ago, the agency tried phasing out the practice, but old equipment wouldn't recognize lowercase letters. Starting May 11th, Weather Service forecasts will no longer read like someone shouting in a hurricane. The agency will use both upper and lowercase letters, except, Buchanan said, in extremely dangerous situations. A new MRI study from the American Academy of Neurology shows that more than 40% of retired NFL players had signs of traumatic brain injuries. The author of the study argues that the finding is a definitive link between brain injury and professional football. This new report comes from one of the largest studies to date of living retired NFL players, as well as the first to demonstrate significant objective evidence for traumatic brain injury in these former players. The study's author said in a press release, the rate of traumatic brain injury was significantly higher in the players than that found in the general population. Back to you, Dr. Townsend. Thank you, Joseph. Not Ben. Or Ben. I set him up as Ben Carson. Ben Carson with the news. Yeah, Ben got a new job with us. Used to be a brain surgeon. Now he's doing news for the Matt Townsend. Then he ran for president. Now he's doing the news for your show. Joseph Carson, by the way, is leaving us. He'll be going to Taiwan That is, folks, what we call missionary roulette. You have no idea where you're going to send an LDS missionary. Joe, he's gone. Not yet. Taiwan. Ben, Germany. Yes. (laughs) You saw yes. Whatever. I did. It was great. Hey, um, we're going to be talking today about hypertension Mm. which and aging. And I don't know where this subject came from, but it couldn't have come at a better time. Really? Yeah. Are, are you a candidate for hypertension? Or I a... am. I'm a candidate and a recipient. Really? Yeah. So you're not only – it's like the hair club for men. It's a lot like that, except it has nothing to do with hair. You're not only the president, you are a client. <laughs> I am a client. It's also – it just so happens that uh, it, it, it coincides with my job here. Hmm. Before, I was very healthy. I'd have – I could get up, exercise, didn't have to be to work till 9, kiss my kids goodbye. Now, I'm just a shaking, <laughs> hypertensive ball. If you take a nap, doesn't that help? Uh, they say it does. Oh, nice. I've yet to see any benefit of that. But oh. if I do measure my time with uh, sleeping with my app, my sleep app – right. It helps a lot, hmm. except I'm now starting to worry because I have to leave my phone on my bed. I kind of basically put it under my pillow. Yes. Now I feel like I have radiation in, eking into my head. See, and I end up with my phone. I, I, I woke up this morning about 2 o'clock, and I'm like, oh, what is that? It's, oh, it's my phone. And I reach behind my back and pull my phone out because I was looking at it when I went to sleep, and then I guess I dozed off with it, and it and ended you just up woke under, up with it. I ended up laying. I ended up sleeping on top of my phone half the night. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of personal. Yeah, it's a little different than your situation. Yeah. You're, you're trying to measure sleep. I was just looking at Instagram <laughs> and then fell asleep. <laughs> your back was measuring 
uh, all night long. It was trying to determine you need the sleep app because then you could have gotten some credit for that. Yeah, I could justify my habit of looking at my phone. It would also tell you you're a back sleeper. Well, yeah. That's for other reasons. Well, that's where we found the phone. (laughs) Um, By the way, did you hear this crazy news uh, about um, Cleveland? Your favorite city. My favorite city from Ohio. It's actually – I have many cities in Ohio that I love. Hmm. Dayton. That's a good one. Cincy. Cleveland. Columbus. Canton's good. Canton. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, by the way, NFL Hall of Fame. Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? No, not really. Super Bowl Hall of Fame. Not su- what's it called? Uh, uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame. Pro Football Hall of Fame. But what's it called? The um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame oh, in, yeah, Col- in Cleveland. Uh, Kirtland, Ohio, one yeah, of the historical yeah. sites of the LDS Church. Um, it's just a great place. Hmm. Marysville, Ohio, Honda plant. Right. There you go. Got to love Honda. I don't know why we keep doing that. It's just a shout-out to Ohio. More you. I love it. Cleveland area police uh, called about missing pies, candy, and music. Hmm. Apparently, there's a pie theft on Gladys Avenue. A woman told police that late March 14th, early March 15th, someone entered her unlocked car and stole two pies. The report doesn't indicate the flavors. What's the point of the story? Missing candy, Athens Avenue. What's the flavor of the pie? While cleaning out the old gym building at uh, Roosevelt Elementary School in preparation for demolition, employees discovered $100 worth of Lakewood Band Booster Association candy was missing. What kind of candy? Pies and candy from the Booster Association. Because if it was like saltwater taffy, eh. Missing. Don't, who cares? If it's a bunch of candy bars, you might want to get up off the seat for that one. The association believed the candy disappeared March 1st and March 2nd. Hmm. They believe it was either taken or thrown out inadvertently. Music critics, Lake Avenue. Police were called at 7 p.m. March 16th to an apartment building about a noise complaint. The apartments were quiet when police arrived, but officers learned a girl in one of the unions units had been practicing her trombone for school. The girl practices in for an 20 minutes daily. In an apartment? Yeah. Oh. These are the calls... Sent to Cleveland area police. Yeah. They're trying to solve murders. Yeah. And instead... They're missing candy? Pies and music. There's a girl playing a trombone. Are you kidding me? And there's music that's too loud. Cleveland! See, if you look at in stories that talk about missing pastries, yeah, they don't really tell you most of the time what the pastries were. Because or the, if, the or, pastry's irrelevant. Or it's if there's an the animal involved, sometimes they don't mention like the type of cat or the type of dog. That's important. Is it a big dog, a little dog? Little dog, pooch, Details. big, huge, like right there, it said candy missing. What kind of candy? But see, again, as a journalist, you would know and I would know that that level of detail, not relevant. It's one word. Yeah. Just If it's, if it's Smarties, eh, you're not going to really do much for Smarties. No. No. If it's a hundred grand bar, you might you might want to step out and open up some sort of yeah. missing person type situation. No, I'd find that candy bar. I'd hit someone with my car for a hundred thousand dollar bar, <laughs> and then we'd read about it on the show. Hey, um, apparently Donald Trump has um, has this weird like he's being attacked by he the is. media. Yesterday, Hillary Clinton debuted her first attack ad. Yeah, against, against but, Donald Trump, but not against Bernie. No. Going after Trump. Says more than half of the record spending on negative advertising during the 2016 presidential primary has been directed at a single candidate, Donald J. Trump. 
Hmm. A barrage that threatens to undermine his candidacy, even as he continues to march toward the, towards the Republican nomination. Of the more than $132 million spent on negative ads by candidates and, and the groups supporting them, nearly $70 million has gone to commercials assailing Mr. Trump. Hmm. This according to the New York Times. The sharp focus on a single candidate is especially surprising, given the exceptional size of the initial Republican field. In addition, Mr. Trump's opponents, three Republican super PACs, have made it their main focus to take him down. The Club for Growth, our Principles PAC, and the American Future Fund all aligned with in, they're all unaligned with any particular candidate. So they're out there just to, just to get Trump. They're not supporting Cruz. They're not yeah. supporting Kasich or, or uh, Hillary Clinton. They're just getting Trump. They're just trying to take down Trump. They have spent more than twenty-five million or twenty-three million dollars on negative ads against him. So wow. you, you reach a record level of, of negative what, ads against what's the one total? person. Seventy million against Trump. But all press is good press to the Donster. Apparently, like he doesn't care. No. But he's also let's be real. Um, we were reading earlier. Uh, apparently, his fan club. Uh, President Sean Hannity, he's been on the Sean Hannity show 41 times. Yes, since he declared. 41 times. And several times for the whole show. Did he declare a year ago? Uh, it's just over a year ago, yeah. So about almost, that's there's only 52 weeks in a year. So he's pretty much been on the show, and a lot of the times when he's on the show, he's on the entire show. Yes. With no notable... Like announcement or news being made to the point where you're like, oh, this is new information. It's just talking to Trump. But I thought there had to be equal time, equal access, maybe not on cable, huh? I don't know. I don't know how that works. So a lot of negative advertising has been, uh, you know, hitting, beating them up, but also apparently a lot of free advertising. Apparently. MSNBC. As they said, it's a CNN. A serialized infomercial. Yeah. It just keeps going and going. Well, he's a lucky fella. I guess. He is a lucky man. And again, I don't think the negative advertising bothers him at all because it just, you know, puts him out there and gets more marketing. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about aging and hypertension. Who better to teach us than Ron Hager? He's going to get us healthy one way or not. He's an expert in chronic disease prevention. And by golly, folks, we're going to help you live longer. If you'll just listen to us, we'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, our good friend uh, Ron Hager is in the studio with us. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His area of expertise is chronic disease prevention. Today, uh, he's going to be walking us through hypertension and also hopefully blowing up our paradigm about aging. I'm going to try. You're going to try. One way or another, <laughs> you're going to get us. You're going to get us healthy here. So. Uh, many people call hypertension the silent killer. They do. Why? Why? Um, because you, because the symptoms... It's like a python. Are, are Yeah, exactly. It's because the symptoms are not apparent. In other words, you don't wake up in the morning and you know feel achy and feverish and say, oh, my blood pressure is off the charts today. You know, you, you cannot really tell. Yeah. And so 
because of that, a lot of people either don't know they have it, or if they get routine checkups and the doctor says, hey, you know, you're hypertensive, then they put them on medication. Yeah. And medications have been very effective at lowering and regulating blood pressure, but they have side effects. Most people who are on a blood pressure lowering regimen of, of medication have to take more than one medication because one medicine has to offset the side effects of the other medicine like like uh, you know, uh, retaining water. So right. you also have to be on a diuretic, and you know that kind of thing. So and, then, yeah, then you're and, in the and, pill. And, there, and there, there's game. other there's other sim, or side effects too, uh, Matt. That you know the person then says, "Wow, before I started taking this medication, I felt fine." You know, because they're dealing with hypertension, which has no real overt symptoms, and and they say, "And I'm taking this medication, and I feel terrible." You know, I I don't have energy, or I feel dizzy, or I feel nauseous, or I don't sleep well, or you know, or whatever, yeah. whatever their experience, and th- and then they so compliance can be an issue. Yeah, then um, they don't want to take it. Yeah, but but like I said, the, the, I'm not I'm not saying that you know the medicine isn't good or can't be effective. I'm just saying sometimes it affects people's ability to comply because they say, look, before I took the medicine, I felt fine. Sure, I had hypertension, but I felt fine. Now I'm taking the medicine. I've got all these side effects, mm-hmm. so it can affect that. But hypertension is what? It's just an, is it an elevated heart rate? Is it, is it the pressure that's dangerous? Is it the heart yeah. working so hard? Yeah, it has to do with the heart working harder, and the pressure in the arteries can actually damage the arteries, uh, leading to things like um, arteriosclerosis, which is a hardening of the arteries, or even atherosclerosis, where plaque builds up in the arteries. Uh, in the small vessels, uh, that hardening of the arteries uh, can occur in the brain. It can occur in the kidneys. Uh, so, you know, it can actually lead to things like uh, strokes and uh, mm. and kidney failure. With the heart working harder, it can lead to an enar- enlarged heart, which, uh, you know, can be problematic over the long term. Uh, heart disease, you know, only kills about directly about maybe 37,000 people a year in the United States, but it contributes to more than 700,000 deaths annually wow. in the United States. Wow. And and the thing I really wanted to focus on today, I mean, I, yeah, I want to kind of highlight hypertension because if you look at uh, hypertension prevalence, just the amount of hypertension in the population across the lifespan, if you look at younger ages, uh, you know, say young adults, maybe 18 to 24 or something like that, um, hypertension prevalence is, you know, maybe only, you know, 3 or 4% yeah. of the population. You say, well, that's great. And it is. But you get up into the higher age categories, uh, like, say, 75 years and older, and uh, depending on whether you're looking at men and women, prevalence is between 70 and 80 percent of the population. And in fact, if if you're 55 years old and have normal blood pressure, you have a 90 percent lifetime risk of developing high blood pressure. That means from 55 until the end of your life, you have a 90% likelihood of becoming hypertensive. And that's that's not just our physiology, right? That's environment. That's right. where yeah, we live. So that's how that, we that's eat. kind of what I wanted to talk about because I want to talk about this myth yeah. of just age-related increases in, in disease, in medical conditions, in poor health. Uh, you know, I mean, you think about this. Uh, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I know you're an old man. 46. 46. There you go. I thought it was 36, but nah, I'm just teasing. That's my hips. Anyway, it was good. <laughs> my hips are 36. Anyway, the point is, tell, tell, tell me this, though. Have you not thought at some point, because 
you think back to earlier years in your life, maybe, yeah. maybe when you were in your teens or mid-20s, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I remember how strong I was. I remember how fit I was. I was invincible. Right, right. And, and even at your relatively young age right now, do you have you not ever thought back and said, yeah, what happened to the good old days? Oh, yeah. So you do kind of fall into this trap of just accepting the fact that you decline as you get well, older. Well, it's like eyesight. We, I think we think our body is just naturally like our eyes. They're just going to go. They just – and then every year you need another prescription. They just go. Yeah. So, of, of course, our heart's going to – we're going to have hypertension because it's just going to go. Right. It's yeah. just what happens. You know, yeah. You're, you're going to get heart disease. You're going to – you know, you're going to need a hip replacement. Yeah. You're going to – well, you know, your back's going to hurt all the time. Whatever. You're not going to sleep as well. People accept these things. Right. And, and, there, and there may be some evidence to show that, sure, as you get older, I mean, you're not going to be as strong, as fit, maybe as healthy. But there are so many things you can do. Now, you've all well, – everybody's heard stories about, you know, elderly people who are just, you know, amazing. You yeah. know, they, they have no aches and pains. They are fully functional. That You know, cognitively, they're all there. Uh, and you say, well, you know, that's just their genes. But there are many examples, Matt, of elderly people who were basically on their deathbeds. Mm-hmm. I mean, their health was so poor, they probably spent more time wishing they were dead than alive. Yeah. And they made changes in their lifestyles, and it changed their whole life. I want to give you just yeah, two examples real quick. So one is a woman I came across some years ago. Uh, her, her name's Mavis Lindgren. And uh, in her mid-60s, uh, she had seen a doctor because her health was so poor. In her mid-60s, she suffered from asthma. She had frequent episodes of pneumonia. Uh, and her doctor suggested that uh, maybe if she became more active, physically active, mm-hmm. uh, that, that it might actually uh, help her, her serious health problems, help her overcome those. And so she decided to take up running. So she's in her mid-60s, wow. and she decides to start running. She runs her first marathon at age 70. <laughs> And, and and then since that time since that time that she ran her first marathon, she ran five to seven marathons a year for the next twenty years from seventy to ninety to ninety. She ran her last Portland marathon, in and and in which you know at which time she set a, a record yeah. for her age group at ninety years old. Is and, there an age group at ninety in the marathon category? Well. I guess there is now. There is now. <laughs> there that is, is now. amazing. I doubt she had much competition. How wonderful. But she, she said that, that you know, one time she was interviewed and she said she had not missed a day of training in seven years. Okay, so this is a woman who turns around, yeah. right? She she makes it a principle in her life, a principle something that she's going to stick with. She's not going to, you know, move it or change it for anything. That's great. And and, and, and that was, you know, her her story. Now, there's another guy I want to tell you about just quickly, Ben Levinson. Uh, he was uh, uh, really having some problems uh, with his health. He was 90, okay? He was 90, had been diagnosed with severe depression. He was very unfit. And uh, he, he met a, a guy who was a, a physical trainer, like a, like a personal trainer. And, uh, and, and the personal trainer described him as frail-looking, and he was hunched over and had an old man shuffle. Yeah. Well, at 90, 90. I, mean, I mean, you can kind of picture right. that, right? I'll be dragging one of my legs at right. 90. And, uh, and, and his, th- this, this trainer told Ben Levinson, he said, look, he said, if you start a fitness program, you'll feel like you're 80 again. <laughs> now, when you're 90, I mean, <laughs> for me great. and you, yeah. feeling like you're 80, that doesn't sound too exciting. But 
when you're 90, yeah. feeling 10 years younger, because you don't even know if you've got That's 10 right. years left in right. your life, feeling 10 years younger uh, w- would be pretty exciting. So he started the training program. <laughs> With that, he grew two inches just because he was able to stand up Tighten straighter. Up, yeah. So it affected his posture. Uh, he had more confidence. Uh, he walked on a treadmill uh, every day for twenty uh, for twenty minutes at two and a half miles an hour. Wow! So that's you know a brisk pace is yeah. usually three and a half to four miles right. an hour, but for for ninety two and a half is brisk. And then he does ten strength training exercises three or four times a week, and and guess what? At a hundred and three, yeah, he set a new world record in an Olympic senior games event for the shot put. You are kidding me! No, he started at ninety. Yeah. Yeah. And, what are and, we doing? So, so in, in an interview about you know his his old age. Yeah. Uh, you know he was asked what his secret was. What he said. And he said could be good uh, genes. He said it could be good genes. Said it could be sensible living. Could be optimism or moderation or staying active. Yeah. He said I've never smoked. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. And I keep away from spicy foods most of the time. That's a good guy. So he said I'd like to say longevity is not everything, but quality of life is. Man, Ron. Yeah. And it's some of this is just the paradigm, right? Just the right. idea that you can keep going and you can make a change. Let's take a break. We're okay. speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, uh, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here, right here at Brigham Young University. We're going to come back. Uh, I think you're also going to blow our mind, Ron, because this isn't – you don't have to get hypertension. You don't, you don't have to. No, even but, though there's a 90% lifetime risk that you would, at age 55 that you would. That people I'm in other saying, cultures and countries, they're yeah, not getting it. Yeah, I'm saying you don't have to. It's, 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 uh, it's something we can fix, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in studio, Dr. Ron Hager here from uh, uh, Exercise Sciences College in the Life Sciences uh, Department. He's an expert in chronic disease prevention. Today he's walking us through hypertension, the silent killer that uh, statistically, at least in the United States, you're eventually going to get this, they say. 90% chance you'll get hypertension. If you're normal, if you have normal blood pressure at age 55. So let's just say you're 55, yeah. which, which I'm not yet either, and neither are no. you. And, and my blood pressure is good right now. So you know, let's just say I, I go see the doctor. I get my blood pressure checked. I say, hey, doctor, how's my blood pressure? He says, oh, it's fine. You're looking good. You're at, that, dead. at that moment, maybe. You are dead. Because, yeah. because according to the prevalence data, uh, I've, I still have a 90% lifetime risk of developing hypertension. Unbelievable. And, and, and Matt, it's not so much about... You know, just giving in right. and saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it. If I get older, I'm going to get it. Uh, you know, there have been a number of studies. I mean, this is the attitude that a lot of people have with their aging. But let me just tell you about a couple of studies, uh, two or three studies that have been done looking at this. One study that was published in 1997 was actually revisiting a a study that had been done 50 years previous to that in 1947. Wow. Where uh, a group of researchers went and studied people. On, a, on an island chain off the coast of Panama uh, called the San Blas Island chain where the indigenous population is called the Kuna, the Kuna Indians. 
And they looked at from young adults, you know, roughly 18 years old, all the way up to, uh, you know, the oldest people Mm -hmm. in the population. And they found zero incidents of elevated, uh, you know, of increasing prevalence of hypertension. Zero. Now, now, now get this. They also looked at, uh, you know, obviously genetically matched counterparts who had migrated off the islands to the mainland of Panama. Now, some of them lived in a community called Cunanega, which was a community developed specifically for these, this, in, th- this group of people so that they could maintain their culture and their traditions. Now, yeah. obviously, they had greater influence from the outside world. Right. And what they found is that those people who had migrated off the island chain did, in fact, obviously adopt. Now, you can't say this is genetics because they're the same people. People, right. And, and their blood pressure started to uh, match, especially with aging, started to match the normal uh, blood pressure prevalence rates oh. of the rest of the population. And then they also looked at a group that had migrated off the islands and moved into Panama City. You know, so you know yeah. the, the you know the the, the thriving th- thriving uh, urban life. You right. know, and their blood pressure prevalence rates were even higher. So from zero prevalence on the islands to you know the kinds of prevalence rates we see in the United so States. So is that just diet, stress, sure, yeah, culture, all, yeah, all kinds of things huh. like that? Now there was TV another dinners, right? Yeah. Now there was a stu- another study done um, uh, later on in in the two thousands uh, in China. And they they showed that, you know, among Chinese, uh, that with increasing age, they saw increasing prevalence of blood pressure. It wasn't so much unlike other, you know, industrialized or, you know, well-developed nations. But what they did is they looked at it in one year, and then they looked at it again 10 years later. And so they had these age groups. And what they found was that within a given age group, um, uh, you know, from from the first time to the second time, a 10-year span, prevalence rates were higher huh. within a given age group. So, you know, that, that tells you that it's not about the aging because something's happening even at a given age yeah. over time that's increasing prevalence. And then a third study uh, that was done uh, in, in the, what was called the African Native at the time, this was published in The Lancet, a premier medical journal uh, out of the U.K., this was published in 1929, where researchers went to Africa and they looked at African natives across the lifespan. And in many cases, they admitted they had to estimate the ages of these people because yeah. they had no clue. No birth certificate. Right. Yeah, there's no birth certificate. But they found the exact same thing that was found, you know, in the 1940s in the Kuna of Panama. Wow. There were no age-related increases in blood pressure, and they compared that to European and American blood pressure prevalence rates, and there was no comparison. They had no, they had no increases in hypertension and very little to begin with. I'm talking about like 2 or 3% maybe. Yeah. But across the whole lifespan, uh, it was non-significant, but all of these studies, well, the Kuna study and the African Native study showed that actually there was actually a slight decrease in prevalence huh. across the lifespan. Wow. Uh, it wasn't significant, but it was a slight decrease. And so, you know, you can take these kinds of examples of studies of people in unacculturated societies, and I think it, 
you know, using just some basic common sense, you can say, well, there's something about the society yeah. I live in. There's something about the patterns that I adopt. Talk about the patterns. We've got two or three minutes. Okay. What's the, what are the patterns we could be changing, the things we should be paying attention to? Well, one of the big problems in developed nations is uh, adult weight gain. And mm-hmm. we've spent some time talking about that in the past. So controlling your weight can help. Uh, you, you're at as much of uh, as a six times increased risk of developing high blood pressure if you're overweight or obese. Um, and in fact, even a single kilogram of weight loss can drop your blood pressure one to two points. Wow, really? Yeah. So uh, another thing you can do is reduce sodium consumption. Now, not everybody is sodium sensitive, but on a population perspective, there's no question. Uh, you know, right now, our average sodium consumption in the United States is about 3,400 milligrams per day. Mm-hmm. And most people don't even know how much sodium they eat. So they could start paying attention to that by reading some nutrition labels and just trying to keep track of it. Um, what but, should it be? But but if you could get it down, as if, if let's just say in the United States, if we could get our sodium average sodium consumption down from thirty four hundred milligrams per day to twenty three hundred milligrams per day, it would eliminate eleven million cases of high blood pressure wow. in the United States. And if you got it down, uh, you know, even more than that, you would see even greater reductions. Um, so you know, managing your diet well and and looking for ways to reduce sodium. Now sodium is a key player in processed foods. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so you got to kind of stay away from the things in boxes, bags, cans, and bottles. Um, but if you do, you know, probably what you just need to do is just take the time to find out how much sodium you're consuming. It's not that hard because it's on all the nutrition labels. Hmm. Uh, alcohol consumption uh, can increase uh, blood pressure. So if a person does drink, you know, probably drink in moderation. And if they don't drink, don't start. Yeah. Um, and then uh, exercise. Uh, exercise regularly. Uh, many, many studies have been conducted to show that uh, during exercise, Matt, your blood pressure goes up. Yeah. Okay. But after exercise, your blood pressure goes down. There's a there's a vasodilation that occurs, a relaxation that occurs. This is part of recovering from the activity that you did metabolically, physiologically. And so your blood pressure actually drops below uh, pre-exercise levels and can stay that way hmm. for up to 22 hours. So yeah. if you exercised every day, basically what you're doing is resetting and you now have a new resting blood pressure. Wow. Because before it has a chance to go back up, you exercise again and you keep it down. See, Ron Hager, you do it every time. <laughs> Thanks. You make us want to be healthier. I try. And, and, and blow up this myth that you're just going to fall apart. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. No. Let everything else fall apart. Sure. (laughs) Ron Hager, we appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for the insight. Again, Ron is associate professor here at uh, BYU and doing what he can to uh, help us live longer. It's good to be here. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you. you. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, visit our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies who are having a party down in Studio B, I believe. What? Yeah, B, I guess. Our good friends uh, Spencer and Jerem down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, sir. That Hello, was, man. That was just what Jerem needed. Is it this song? Yep. Because now I was, he. I sang that on the show yesterday. You did? Yep. Yeah. 
See how good Ben is. Someone, Buffalo someone. soldier. Sean Olmstead said that when he played on the volleyball team, his wife would see the whole team was in BYU gear, and then Sean would be in his future wife, who played on the soccer team, would, uh, would be like in a Bob Marley shirt. She's like, <laughs> "You're so weird." <laughs> so then I was Buffalo. So I started singing. It was funny that you played. See how you are. You but you can break into song at any time. That's what I think is neat about you. You'll never see me just break into song. It's very rare. Very rare, man. <laughs> very rare. Hey, um, you guys, I got a question for you. You always do. If um, always do. Let's just say you're at a diner in Los Angeles eating. Let's, let's just say. say you're eating some sushi. Mm-hmm. And um, all of a sudden, a guy walks in and drops a 13-foot python on the floor. Of the sushi restaurant. I'm out. See ya. <laughs> what do you do? Leave immediately. I'm out. What if the What if it's at the front door? I there's there are many other doors. You can't yes. open a business with just a front door. Yes. Go through the window. Find a way out. This happened in L.A. A guy did that. I mean, what you do is you have to sacrifice somebody, right? So you throw somebody over by the snake. <laughs> a distraction. You throw the most annoying person in your party. <laughs> Who's the loudest? Uh, <laughs> Stacy, we're going to have to get rid of you here. Uh, it's not my... Listen, it's fine. <laughs> you get an auto bid for taking one for the team. That's right. Police responded. The man was arrested for suspicion of making criminal threats. This is why you don't... Suspicion of making uh-huh. criminal threats. Apparently throwing a python on the ground. There's a lot of gray area there. Wow. Yeah. His attorney's going to be able to work that. <laughs> the python was taken by animal control officers... Apparently, nobody died. Good hmm. news. Well, that, that's, that's good. That is good news. Does that make you uh, want sushi? No, I, I just... There's nothing why, to do with sushi. Why drop off a python? Hey. Oh, hey, everybody. 13-foot python. No, he, this guy was mad. <laughs> you shortchanged me? I'm getting my python. Don't make me get my python. <laughs> why? That's pretty People sad. People are so weird. They're totally weird. And the, you you heard earlier Chick-fil-A is shunning iceberg lettuce now. Why? Because it has no nutritional value. Really? And I'm telling them you don't mess. Wait, now we're yeah. realizing this? Yeah. There's no nutritional value. Oh, wait. We've we've known this for a while. We just eat it anyway. Which well, is funny because their, their, their Chick-fil-A sauce boasts 140 calories, <laughs> 13 grams of fat, and they're and keeping that. And it's delicious. Mm-hmm. It gives nourishment and strength and does That's you right. the good that you need. <laughs> That's That's beautiful. <laughs> Nourishment and strength. Strength. Give us the, do us the good we need. Um, yeah, so they're getting rid of it. They may add kale. And I'm telling them right now, I want, I'm, I'm going to start a revolt. If they start putting kale on my Chick fil A plate, I'm out of here. But I am <laughs> going to continue to not go there on Sundays. That's right. That's exa- and exactly when it's closed. And I'm probably going to get my python. You're gonna. They're gonna put kale. I would like some python on my <laughs> Chick Fil A. Hey, get your get that kale off my Chick Fil A. I'll grab my python. <laughs> it's a um, yeah. They they may put kale because it's it's a super it's a super vegetable or whatever they're calling it. Super vegetable. Mm-hmm. It's super. It's a super, super food. Such a cop out. Of it's a, a word, super food. You can't think of anything, so you just say super man. Super Power greens. <laughs> Hand me some power greens, Extra Ma. strength vegetables. <laughs> I always laugh when I'm buying, like, salads at the store, you know. Yeah. Because, like, they, you know, they, they say things like that. Like, oh, your power greens mix. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like words 
yeah, words can be very effective, right? Yeah, uh, totally. So Red Bull is just it's just a different kind of soda. No, That's right. No, wait, it's no. an energy drink. It's an energy drink. But you guys, you guys are power. You're a, you're you're like you're like a power food. Yeah, you're a super power food. Goons. Power goons. <laughs> we're the kale of sports. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Hey, um, kind of weird, but somewhat necessary. <laughs> the blue algae or something. I'm sure. I'm sure you guys heard the news Blue too. Cheese. Did you hear the news about um, no. bowl games? Yes. Yes. No more bowl yes. games. There's the a moratorium. NCAA had a good idea, Matt. The anarchy ends. Forty-one postseason bowl Who's games. Who's running the bowl games? The Joker. Yeah. We'll just have a million of them, and five and seven teams will qualify. What? Do you, do you guys? Would you be willing? Because we still want to do a bowl game called Taser Bowl. Taze it. <laughs> and the winner of the game, nice cougar, um, and the winner of the game there, uh, the, the loser gets tased by the winning team. Ooh. Don't you think? But that would have been the 42nd bowl game. The 2014 uh, Miami Beach Bowl, that would have been very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What happened? <laughs> BYU lost in double overtime, and that's it. Oh, and then, yeah. that would See, that's where nothing, they needed nothing it. Else nothing, else. Nothing, nothing to report here. Nothing to report here. Just tase them. Tase them, folks. Tase them. <laughs> that would have ended everything, wouldn't it? Well, we and we were on the field, so we would we would have been able to watch it too. So. Oh, that would have been great video. Yeah, great video. There was some, there was some video from that. Oh, you guys, yeah, there was some tase video. Them. That video got out there. You know, um, you guys, I, I want you to be my my announcers at the Taser Bowl. We, we consider got us done. We got you. Listen, you probably need someone else as the analyst. Why? Two, gr- two grand a piece. That's all we ask. Two grand? How about just uh, $2,000 worth of tasers? Um, we got bejeweled. Uh, yeah, I'd like cash. I would prefer cash, I'd but like I'll take geez. the tasers if that's all we yeah, get. I, mean, I guess we could sell them on eBay. Yeah. You guys, greedy. <laughs> How about uh, all the sushi you could eat? And a cobra. As long as there are no pythons. No, and a python. A, I want a python. Hey, um, are you guys still doing your show today? We are doing it today. What's Today's a, a big show. What's up? As opposed to all the other 692 other shows. They're all big in my eyes. We have, we have gone back to a very near and dear topic to my heart, Matt Townsend. Dance? And that is, as Jerem termed it this morning, the curious case of BYU wide receiver Mitch Matthews. Mm. All of a sudden he has this rising NFL draft stock. One man, one <laughs> draft. And one according ambition. to... A few people, including an NFL senior analyst for NFL.com, this he, is, summer. he is worthy of a late-round draft selection. Late-round. He's worthy. Like, he can, he can yield the hammer of Thor. Wow. <laughs> so we are asking today, are you buying into that? Yeah, Do you think you, yeah, that yeah. Mitch Matthews will be drafted? Why or why not? We all know Bronson Kafusi is kind of a sure bet. Yeah. Like we're seeing second to fourth round all over the board. It will happen. He's going to be drafted. Yeah. But will Mitch Matthews be a second draft pick from this BYU team? Interesting question. And we add into the uh, discussion, ESPN's Merrill Hodge will join us to break down Bronson Kafusi. He's going to do that tonight on cool. ESPN, so you get kind of a preview on that. We Ask Merrill about his son. We yes. asked him about Mitch Matthews. We talked about his son, Bo Hodge, who's the third-string quarterback. Sweet. Also, T.J. Haas will be on the show. T.J. Haas was on his mission in Lyon, France. <laughs> During the past two years, he is one of those lone peak three with Nick Emery and Eric Mika that a lot of people are excited about. So he will be in studio. It's his first appearance on BYU Sports Night. I bet he talks funny. 
We'll find out. I'm going to have him say BYU Sports Nation is the greatest show ever in French. Oh, that'll be cool. He's, he's one of the greatest red-headed BYU athletes ever, and he hasn't even suited up yet. That's amazing also yes. that we even have that category. Yeah. yeah. BYU Gingers, yeah. one of the greatest. <laughs> Great. Is that the show? That's, That's awesome. That's the show. That's a That's lineup. The That's the show, it's, baby. It's loaded, man. And listen, Merrill yeah. Hodge has some interesting takes on Bronson Kafusi. Sweetness. Like, it is eye-opening. Really? Cool. To say the least. Okay, so everybody has to tune in. Top of the hour. Five minutes away. Just do it. Just it, do it. All right. Thanks, guys. There's Knock them dead. Watch out for the python. Um, I always do. <laughs> that's it, folks. you got to make sure you tune in. Top of the hour. It's it's a must-see TV, BYU TV, or must-listen-to must radio. Also, uh, just to kind of fill you in on um, another story that we've been watching very closely. If you are going to carjack a FedEx truck, folks, can I just help you out here? If you're going to do this, if you're going to do something illegal— you gotta, you got to be smart. you got to think through this. If you are going to carjack a FedEx truck, it's important to remember two things. Number one, make sure you can actually drive the vehicle. And number two, please put on some clothes. Authorities in Riverside County, California said Albert Luna overlooked those details during in what they describe as a carjacking event Saturday evening in Coachella. Police said a FedEx driver was getting a package out of the truck when Luna demanded the keys. Luna was not wearing any clothes at the time. I got to admit, like the clothes thing, like it's a lot easier to forget than you give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've really. So you just like, oh, geez. Holy. What did I not dress? (laughs) Not again. Dummy. Uh, But uh, by the way, if a guy asks you, if a guy walks up without clothes on and, you know, holds you up and says, hey. Give me your keys. You know what? I'd give him my keys. <laughs> I'd throw my keys right at his face and then I'd run away. Jeez. The driver handed over the keys, ran to a nearby home to report the incident. He was not injured. Police said Luna put the keys in the truck so that he could drive away, but he was unable to drive it. So he ran away from the scene, still naked, of course, according to uh, Palm Desert uh, Patch. Investigators tracked down Luna at his home the next day. I wonder how they tracked him down. Oh, that's Luna. Yeah, he's the naked man that runs around the neighborhood. Crazy, folks. And you thought your life was weird? Can't even steal a uh, FedEx truck without getting in trouble. Hey, um, New Jersey, we always like to uh, do a hero story. And what better place to stop than New Jersey? A New Jersey cop is the hero of the day. This man saves three lives in 10 days. One New Jersey police officer single-handedly saving three lives in 10 days. And now he's getting a heartfelt hug in an emotional meeting with the son of a woman he saved. This is from CBSNews.com. Officer Brian Strockbein saved Pete Corelli's mother after police said her husband tried to kill her. CBS News uh, New York reports, we are able to still hug and for that my family is forever grateful, Corelli said. On March 8th, Stockbrine got a call about a woman who appeared to be dead on the front lawn. She was brutally beaten, had no pulse, and wasn't breathing. Stockbrine started CPR, and after three minutes, she started breathing. The 69-year-old wants to keep her name private, but told police her husband attempted to kill her. We don't do this job to be thanked or for recognition. 
I love being a police officer, and that made me so proud, Stockbrine said. In another incident, smoke a smoke-filled car and a man inside was unconscious. Stockbrine broke the car window, brought the man to safety. And just five days after that, the brave officer revived another woman who was unconscious. That day, I was so proud to be a police officer. I was proud for the work of this department. It reminded me of why I wanted to do this, Stockbrine said. And those directly impacted insist he's more than Evan uh, Eve Sham Township Officer of the Month. He's a hero, one responsible for saving three lives in 10 days. I didn't realize how emotional something like that would be just because I was able to make a real impact on somebody's life, he said. So there you have it, Officer Brian Stockbrian. You are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Again, folks, the reason we do the show is to help you see that there is good in the world. There are ways to improve your state of being and your life. And one way to do that is just by reaching out to help the people around us. By the way, let's begin with our families first. No better change than just starting at home and starting with yourself. We couldn't do the show without you. But uh, if you missed any of it, you can go to iTunes or tune in and pick up any of the past episodes. Also, go look for the BYU Radio app and download that. Until tomorrow, folks, we'll be back giving you more tools, more ideas. Watch each other's back and make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.